to Weird Comics History, where we bring you some weird comics history every single week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. Uh, you can find that on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, maybe other places. But if you subscribe to WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast, we will show up every Sunday morning. Uh, what do we got this week, Chris? I think we're doing uh, part six of the code, right? The code in, in the 30th century. <laughs> Yes, this was... is the uh, Legion of Superheroes uh, comic code. Right. Uh, this, the... this is that official cosmic code authority uh, episode. Yeah, that's Starlin news, right? Yeah. No, yes. actually, we are done. We are done with our five-part look at the uh, comics code authority. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about a person who's very important to comics, uh, definitely, mm-hmm. uh, primarily in our lifetimes. Uh, but Certainly. Very interesting history. His name is John Byrne, and I'm calling this one... Yes. Art and robotics, because he is has a forum called Burn, Burn Robotics. Robotics. So anyway, uh, John Lindley Byrne. He was born July 6, 1950, to Frank and Nesley. Born in Wassall, West Midlands, but raised in West Bromwich, England, until he was eight when the family emigrated to Canada. Uh, he enrolled in the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary, 1970, he created the gay guy for the college newspaper. This was a satirical look at homosexual art school student stereotypes. Uh, I, you didn't see any of that, did you? I would love to see this. I did. Stuff. Oh, you did? did. Uh, well, how did yeah. it look? Was it uh, interesting? It was, uh, you know, it was very, it, the gay guy was a flamboyant, obviously. Yeah. But uh, it, it was a very, uh, like, prehistoric burn. It was, uh, it was interesting. I'm going to have to look that up, and uh, maybe I'll... It's not a, hard to find, I'll yeah. throw a link to that. Yeah, I assume gay guy burn will, will turn up <laughs> pretty quickly, yep. but I, I, didn't, I didn't think to go look at it. So uh, his, he said about it, We were all greatly enamored of the, of the deliberately outrageous and often tasteless humor to be found in the National Lampoon, and this was my shot at such. Uh, he also did ACA Comics, no, uh, number one, in May 1971. ACA is the Alberta College of Art. That was the first ever published work of John Byrne, and he did a story in there called The Death's Head Night. Now, he left without graduating, because I think it was 1973. Does that sound right to you? I think so. He broke into comics through a FOOM, a fan contest through FOOM, which was Friends of Old Marvel, which I think was run by Roy Thomas. Um, I think you're right. Uh, that, oh, I'm sorry. I see it right here. It was a Jim Starenko-produced fanzine, so he yes. was actually <laughs> he was actually holding the torch. The information's right in front of your face. So uh, yeah, he broke into comics then, and that was it. Goodbye, Alberta College of Art. Hello, Marvel. His first professional comic sale was Dark Asylum in Giant Size Dracula number five in June 1975. That was obviously mm-hmm. to Marvel Comics. Yes. Yeah, but a little earlier, he did some work for a company called Skywald Productions. He drew a two-page story and an issue of uh, Nightmare. It was issue number 20, August 1974, and it was written by a fellow by the name of Al Hewitson, I think? Yeah, that that sounds right. He was Canadian, so he probably has a funny-sounding name. (laughs) It might. Hewitson. He was also an editor at Skywald, and uh, he he worked remotely from Ontario, so it was the other side of Canada. Yeah, I mean, this is is so, so weird, like all this Canadian talent, you know, I, mean, I don't know whether Skywald mm-hmm. was getting a cut rate or something, but uh, yeah, <laughs> they, they even let this guy work remotely, which at the time for an editor to work remotely was unusual because it would require... In the mid-70s, yeah. Uh, yeah, it required a lot of FedExing, a lot of, you know, mail costs, but he did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, his uh, full-color debut was uh, at, at Charleston, I'm sorry, at Charlton Comics. It's a, uh, it was a backup feature in an issue of E-Man, uh, which was drawn by uh, Joe Staten. 
Um, this featured Raj 2000, who uh, is a character that Byrne created and is now the, uh, if you're familiar with his, his website and his forum at Byrne Robotics, you'll see a, uh, a robot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this robot is Raj 2000. And uh, he also did Raj 2000 backups in issue 6, uh, January 1975, 7, also somehow January 1975. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Charlton's publishing schedule wasn't as regular maybe as it needed to be. We should talk about them one of these Maybe days. Maybe we will. <laughs> uh, issue 9, July 75, and issue 10, September 75. Um, now, this is the first one that I'd ever heard that he did um, from spending a little bit of time on his form. Uh, almost has legendary status. It, it's the uh, Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch, number two. Uh, uh, September 1975, and he also did issue number four in January of 1976. This is a uh, adaptation of a cartoon that uh, starred a heroic red VW Beetle. I remember the cartoon. And it was uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and, and the the Beetle talked with a kind of a raspy cough, not unlike uh, what's another Hanna Barbera character, the uh, Snagglepuss, right? Laughs. Muttley. Muttley. That's Muttley. what I'm thinking of. I'm yes. sorry. Uh, yeah, Snagglepuss. I think he had a kind he of exit thing. stage left. And I think Wheelie, but then he also had like a stutter. It was it was it was a uh, it was a good time. Very 70s that cartoon. Was it a Hanna Barbera? Because it looks so much like it. I'm, I can't, I can't say I'm positive it was. It could have been Filmation. It could have been any one of the other Hanna Barbera like yeah. uh, studios. My memory is a Hanna Barbera, but it could have been who knows? It could have been Ruby Spears or one of, any one Maybe of those guys. Maybe he'll show up in Wacky Races. Oh, uh, good. I can't wait. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Joe Staten, he drew the other five issues on that run. Um, and uh, Byrne also did uh, a, a comic called Space 1999, issues three through six. It's a bi-monthly series, uh, March, uh, March, June 1976, which was written by Nicola, is it Cootie? I'm going to say Cootie. That sounds like Cootie, a right. Yeah. Yeah. Or Cootie, yeah. Uh, she did C-U-T-I. A lot of, she, she, and I'm assuming she, but she did a lot of work at this time for Charlton. She was obviously mm-hmm. one of their... Uh, talents for, for whatever that's worth. I never read these comics, but I did. I have seen the television show from the late '70s, and it's sort of like a low-budget Battlestar Galactica, which is itself a low-budget Star Trek or Star Wars. <laughs> so you know, it's sort of uh, low-budget, two times removed. Oh, Nicola Cudi is a fella. There you uh, go. He went, yeah, he went by Nick Cudi. <laughs> there you go. See, I'm glad you looked that up, or I might have really had egg on my face. So. Uh, <laughs> After Charlton, though, he, he and actually, as, as, as you'll see, if you match up the dates, even at the beginning, he was doing a little double duty for Marvel and Charlton, but he was eventually uh, picked up by Marvel. He was brought there by Chris Claremont, who saw his work at Charlton. I really hope what he saw was Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch. Uh, yes. His first work was picking up the Iron Fist story from Pat Broderick, who had missed a deadline. Uh, that was Marvel premiere number 25, 1975, and then he went on to do... Iron Fist numbers one through nine, August seventy-five to September nineteen seventy-six. That was all written by Chris Claremont, and they co-created the character Sabretooth, mm-hmm. uh, who looms large in most mutant stories. I feel like these days. Yeah. Uh, can we can we still say mutant? Is that allowed? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, they, they'll bleep us <laughs> if we can. They'll cease and desist on, on the word mutant. <laughs> Um, Lee drew champions number 11 through 15. That was November 76 to July 77. Written by Bill Metlow. And drew Marvel team-up number 68 through 70, April through June 1978. All written by Chris Claremont. So you see that this duo that would become you know, so famous later, this yeah. is when they're building their name. Uh, yeah, 
they're quite a prolific team. Yeah. Uh, of the three issues he did for the Marvel team up, the one I really I got to get my hands on is number sixty-eight, Spider-Man featuring Man Thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I just want to know that <laughs> how that went. Really, uh, did Spider-Man no fear? That's the question. Um, yes. This is another. This next thing is is an evidence of something Byrne did quite a lot, and I really wish we had every instance of it. But there's just tons of them. But he did a lot of these like oversized prestige format uh, one shots, and probably the first one he did was the black and white Marvel pre- preview presents Star Lord. That was a mm-hmm. summer 1977 issue uh, written by Chris, Chris Claremont, inked by Terry Austin. Now uh, Marvel four preview. It was out for 14 issues. I think it actually changed names somewhere along the line. Um, Published by Magazine Management, but it was affiliated with Marvel, and then for, for 10 issues, uh, and it would feature their characters and various sci-fi detective and adventure characters that came out. I think they tried to come out quarterly, didn't mm-hmm. quite make it, couple, maybe, you know, once or twice a year was the best they could do. <laughs> uh, Punisher's first solo story was in Marvel Preview number 2, 1975, so, you know, this was a prestige magazine. It was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. has a lot to do with Marvel history. But the whole yeah. point of all this that we're saying, all this work he did, if you match up the dates, if you get your calendar out and you draw a timeline, was John Byrne was staying pretty busy. Yes. Uh, there he, was not an empty month, really, I think, in this whole time that he was doing nothing. Uh, obviously, publishing dates being somewhat different than production sure. dates, we don't know. But, uh, you know, he was getting a lot of work, and he'd really only been in the business a short number of years. Relatively yeah, short time, Relatively yeah. short time. Uh, but then he moved on to what what he probably one of the things he's most famous for. Yeah. Well, before we get to the X Men, um, was a I wonder if Marvel Preview if if they used the similar thing as a Epic Illustrated, which I think started in '79. That might be what and, happened. Uh, I think I think it might have morphed into Epic. Because uh, one of the things I, that I, I I didn't notice in our outline here is. Uh, John Byrne did a story in Epic Illustrated t- called "The Last Galactus Story," yeah, which uh, was which ended without being finished. It was a an interesting take where I think it I think it was going to end with him being responsible for the Big Bang. Wow. Um, where where I guess every so when when Galactus dies, a Big Bang happens and the universe <laughs> starts new. Um, <laughs> every time you know Galactus that. dies, the universe gets its start. Gets its wings. You know? yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anywho, that was uh, that was more burn. Uh, uh, let's go on to the X-Men here. He started with issue number 108 in December 1977. Uh, some famous storylines here. Uh, the Proteus storyline, which introduces uh, X-Men ally Maura McTaggart's crazy son. Um, and this was a this was an important story, at least to me, because it, it felt like the first time that the all-new X-Men that showed up in Giant Size number one actually felt like they gelled as a team. Oh, yeah. You know, they... Uh, they actually, it seemed like they, they were like that well-oiled machine. It was not just a, a group of characters. It was actually a team, a family. Um, also, you know, a lot of people know the Dark Phoenix saga. Oh, yeah. This is probably which, one of, like, two or three most famous. Yeah. Uh, if not the most X- famous one, yeah. X-Men stories in history, yeah. Sure. Uh, not just of this era. And this was the uh, the death of, quote-unquote, Jean Grey. <laughs> uh, Dark Phoenix's murderous intergalactic rampage. Now, this is uh, this story is famous for a lot of reasons. Uh, among them is the fact that the story ending was changed at the behest and later mandate of uh, editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, uh, which stated that Jean, because uh, Jean had uh, wiped out a planet full of... <laughs> they yeah. call them the asparagus people because they look like asparagus. 
but she wiped out an entire planet. So billions of people died at the whim of who we thought was Jean Grey. And uh, Jim Shooter said that uh, she had to pay for her crimes. She had to pay with her life. There was no way to rehabilitate her. And, uh, you know, she was, in t- she was originally intended to come out of it with, uh, like, almost lobotomized. And I think her powers were going to be uh, taken away for a time, too. Yeah. And uh, that ending actually, it, it actually showed up in print in a one-off called Phoenix, the Untold Story that was published in April 1984. Huh. I've got that. It's it's very interesting. I've, I've never heard of that, actually. It's, is, it, is that by Byrne and Claremont, too, or is that yep. sort of it's, yep. oh, that'd be interesting yeah, to it's see. All... So it's weird that Shooter let them have their little, their, uh... <laughs> Their version of events, but the canon was going to be obviously was going to be the way it was going to uh, be that she died. I, you know, I've heard Jim Shooter tell the story too in such a way that uh, Byrne and Claremont came into his office, which right away sounds unlikely that the two of them, even <laughs> especially at this point, would be coming into anywhere together. But yeah, uh, and they said, you know. Uh, screw it, we're going to kill Gene Gray. And he was like, fine, go ahead. He called he, their like, bluff. Called yeah. their bluff. I don't know how true that is, but, you know, it's 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 interesting, different sides of these stories. So, sure, sure. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's 40 years ago, and the more you tell yourself something, especially over four decades, oh, the yeah. more it becomes true. Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they say you could beat a lie detector if you believe you're telling the truth. <laughs> That's what George Costanza said, right? <laughs> that is what George Costanza said. not a said. lie if you believe it to be true. <laughs> Yes. Um, another story that they did was uh, Days of Future Past, which was in issues 141 and 142, uh, January and February 1981. Uh, issue number 142 is the first official issue of Uncanny X-Men, uh, as per the indicia. I can't believe and, uh, this is uh, two issues. Yeah. Right? Like, in my, my, my memory, it was like it was like a, a year-long event, but no, it's nope, just two just issues. Wow. Two issues, and, and I actually found them both in a half-price books clearance bin for a dollar each. Nice. Good. Just a couple of years ago. De- decent <laughs> decent uh, reading copies, or...? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were they were in perfect condition. I couldn't believe. I I, I ran out of that store like I was stealing something. Yeah, really. That means someone didn't <laughs> know insane. what they had. Those are those you know in good condition, especially that. That's the second one with the uh, you know the wanted cover, right? Yep. yep. The, yeah, that that one goes for big dollars if you have it in good condition. Yep. No, and I actually bought I bought those the same day that I found an issue of Sandman in the twenty five cent bin. Oh man! And when I went when I went to buy them, the dude at the register is like, "Oh my god!" I was like, "Oh crap!" I'm, you know, the jig is up. Yeah, <laughs> he's got it. And he goes, "I can't believe we put Sandman in the quarter bin." Like, oh, <laughs> oh man! <laughs> kind of shows on what side of the bread his butter was on, right? He was yeah, so like, I was oh. like, I was like, yeah, yeah, go figure. Yeah, those Sandman so. comics go for a ton of money, dude. You know, like, like yep. no, really, they're not that. Crazy. Crazy. Uh, that's a, that's oh. that's really funny. And I, you know, I I always thought the story was kind of overrated. But then again, I came into it years later, where all I heard was how great it was. You know, so I think I, I did my, too. my expectations were kind of high. When this when this came out, I was uh, six. You know, so I wasn't. I, yeah. I didn't read it, nor <laughs> nor would I have comprehended it when that story came out. So I didn't read it until in trade, maybe even until late '90s, to be honest with you. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I was at that time. A pretty big fan of this. I was getting into this era of, of X Men, and I was uh, yeah. a pretty big fan of it. And I, and I too found it a little overly complicated. Yeah, uh, it was very, it was underwhelming, and but, I just didn't see what all the hubbub was about. Uh, a little overwritten, but I, I guess you know, giving that kind of a glimpse into an alt, you know, for Marvel to dabble in that alternate timeline thing, that really it juiced, was a novelty. Yeah, yeah. It really juices some people's gears. So. It's a it's a cool story, and like I say, I, sure. the fact that you're saying it's two issues, I'm thinking it is two issues, but in my <laughs> mind, is, yep. I just had it as a much bigger epic. 
Oh, same with the Phoenix, uh, the Dog Phoenix saga. It's only it's only a handful of issues, yeah. but you'd you you'd bet money that it was a two year storyline. Yeah, it seems um, that way. Yeah, uh, the, uh, uh, JB had a few co creations here. Uh, Kitty Pride, Shadow Cat. Um, she was modeled after Sigourney Weaver, a young Sigourney Weaver, and uh, named after a classmate of Burns who was uh, dating a friend of his. And uh, when he heard her name, he said that the first thing he thought was uh, that would make a great superhero name. And the second and, thing he uh, thought was that would make a great stripper name. <laughs> <laughs> potato, potato. Hey, really it's the same thing. It's true, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just different costumes. A, exactly. Well, it depends if you're fighting Sometimes crime the same. or you're yeah. taking them off. Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> and uh, he mentioned that to her, and she said, hey, you're free to use it if you ever uh, come into the opportunity. So uh, now he claims that during the character's introduction, uh, Claremont, who was still salty about having to kill off the first Thunderbird, uh, that was in, I think it was in X-Men number 94. I yeah. think Count Nefaria killed him, or he was caught in some sort of explosion. And uh, Claremont was still salty about that. And he wanted uh, this new character to be named Thunderbird. Byrne didn't dig that. And, uh, you know, he thought that, he, you know, he started thinking about bird names because Thunderbird and came up with the name Kitty Hawk after the uh, the ass stripper or whatever. Yeah. And uh, that stirred his memory of his old friend Kitty Pride. And uh, the only comment they have is, at the time, she was thrilled. That's it. That's all, so, that's all, you, she, that's all you have to say on that. We don't know if she's still very thrilled or when the X-Men hit their, you know, hit their heyday there, if she was still very pleased about it or if she kept getting weird mail or something. Who knows? Uh, I love this uh, Batman 66 way that he came to the name, you know. I started thinking about birds and birds, <laughs> hawks, hawks, kitty hawk. Kitty, it's a catastrophe you know? in yeah, exactly. Kathmandu. Yeah, exactly. Three mittens were stolen. <laughs> it's exactly. It's like, what a weird, you know, well, I guess if you want to know the artist process, there it is, folks. Sometimes it it's is. just like falling down a flight of stairs. Yes, inside the artist studio. <laughs> uh, he also uh, co-created the Hellfire Club, which was somewhat based on characters appearing in an episode of uh, the UK version of The Avengers. That's that Peel and Steed thing that I've never watched. Right, the TV show, not the comic yeah, book. Not- yeah, there's no Captain America here. Uh, this was a, in the episode titled A Touch of Brimstone, and uh, they changed the character of Mastermind to look more like a actor by the name of Peter Wingard as he was portraying a role of a fellow by the name of Jason King. Okay. So the name became Jason Wingard, where uh, you know Mastermind before that, and, and Mastermind's actual outward appearance is kind of just like a, like a skinny, slovenly fellow with a mustache, but... Uh, he makes himself look like this handsome, debonair Englishman. Hmm. Um, and they modeled it after this, uh, this actor, Peter Wingard. Uh, Sebastian Shaw, he was uh, modeled after British actor Robert Shaw. Donald Pierce was modeled after Donald Sutherland. I mean, I see, I see sort of a little uh, formula going on here, you know, just... Yes. It, <laughs> we can, we can well, steal the face and take one of their names, too. One of them. <laughs> but we're going to throw, throw a curveball here. Harry Leland, the heavyset fella, he was modeled after Orson Welles. And then Emma Frost. Who do you think Emma Frost was named after? I guess it was Emma Peel from the Avengers, right? We'll yes, you go. Yes, she was played by. <laughs> she was played by Diana Rigg. Wow, um, that's pretty crazy. I, I, you know, I wonder how much of that was Claremont and how much was Byrne. Claremont did love his British stuff, and, his UK and, stuff. 
And it's kind of heartbreaking to look back at their era, or at least a lot of Claremont stuff in retrospect, because, you know, like The Brood came out right around the time Alien came out. Yeah. It's like there's just so many things that's like, oh, and the Star Jammers was around the time that Star Wars came out. It's like, okay. That's awfully <laughs> coincidental. Something must have been in the air, I suppose. You know, yeah. But, uh, I mean, like the Shi'ar came out when the Legion kind of hit it big. I mean, I mean, listen, we, uh, you know, if, if you're looking to comic books for a lot of originality, you should really keep looking on there isn't you know what i mean there's some originality but then there's a lot of also rants but yes. hopefully uh you know over successive weeks of listening to our podcast you'll get that idea too <laughs> so uh eventually though john byrne calls it quits even though his run on uncanny x-men which is what it's called by this point was wildly popular and selling uh massive amounts um with uncanny x-men number 140 december 1980 uh, the problem with this particular issue, you know, Byrne and Claremont had been, uh, you know, getting on each other's nerves pretty much the entire time from what I, from the way they talk about it now. Yeah. That there was never a time that they got along, but definitely it seems like from about 79 on they were uh, increasingly uh, getting into conflict. Yeah. So uh, John Byrne intended uh, that there was going to be an easy task for the powerful. Uh, Colossus to yank up a tree from the ground and he even had drawn it in such a way that there was going to be well he says right here he says specifically it was the way I had drawn Colossus easily ripping the stump out of the ground replete with flying clumps of earth and speed lines versus the way Chris scripted it I saw that page printed and I just threw up in my hands uh, I threw up my hands not threw up <laughs> sorry <laughs> two different things really and he said can't do this anymore so yeah Claremont had added dialogue like a grunt or you know some to kind of indicate a, a struggle indicate yeah. that it was harder for him to do and that was it he couldn't take it uh, I felt like it was contrary to the artwork uh, it seems like a small thing but like I say this was the, probably the straw the that straw. broke the camel's back yeah, yeah. Uh, he called Wheezy who was Louise Simonson then an editor on X-Men and a long time Marvel veteran uh, mm-hmm. At the same day to resign from the book, which I didn't know you could do from freelance work, but I guess you got <laughs> to tell somebody if you don't want to do it. So anyway, uh, yeah. but that wasn't all he did. Right after that, he did the Fantastic Four. He had a run from issues 232 to 293. That went from July 1981 to August 86. Uh, this is one of the most best remembered things that Byrne did, best remembered things from Marvel and Fantastic Four. A lot of people say, yeah. and I think I would probably... Agree. I'd have to really think about it a little more, but it's probably second best to Lee and Kirby. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's really it shows he had a lot of feeling for the character, uh, but that doesn't mean he didn't do some wacky things with it. And uh, in <laughs> issue number two thirty six, uh, November nineteen eighty one, John Byrne drew Stanley and Jack Kirby on the cover. This is sort of a cover with just a ton of it's like a gang of people around. This was a, oh, yeah. this was a big issue. Uh, Jim Shooter had Kirby removed before publication. Uh, which which fell on Byrne. Like people were play, blaming Byrne. Oh really? They, they blamed that. him. They were like, "Yeah, why it? did you only draw Stan?" Wow. And he's like, "No, I didn't just draw Stan. Kirby was taken out." <laughs> I mean, maybe at this time they didn't know that he would never make that kind of mistake. But that's, it's it's. I think it's even interesting they they brought him out because this is really the uh, a time when Kirby, you know, he was still alive, or he maybe was just yeah, about to yeah. pass, but he was. Well, he, uh, he died in, like, 92. Oh, really? 90, so, yeah, he died oh, a little bit later, yeah. But I, I know I've read interviews and even heard interviews, and there's that famous one where he calls into some show that Stanley is on, and Jack Kirby is mad as hell. He feels like he's been, <laughs> he feels like he's been ripped off by Marvel, you know, because he made Captain America. And that, that's a story we will we'll get, get to. to but, you know, um, 
Anyway, it's interesting that you know he had to uh, take some direction from Jim Shooter pretty early on in his run, and this is going to sort of be a pattern for him throughout all of his uh, writing and drawing of Fantastic Four. But other things that he introduced was uh, he renamed Sue Storm Invisible Woman rather than Invisible Girl, which was a, a pretty sensible update at the uh, Trial of Reed Richards, Trial of Galactus. This is issue number 262, January 1984. Mr. Fantastic is put on trial in intergalactic court for saving Galactus's life, which is puts up the question, is Galactus evil? Are you yeah. abetting evil if you save Galactus? When all Gal Galactus says himself, he cares not for you puny humans. He needs to eat. That's it. He needs food. It's, he's not doing it because he hates you. He just has to munch down on your planet. So... Uh, Reed is found not guilty, and in that comic, John Byrne makes a guest appearance as a writer of Fantastic Four's comic exploits. That's uh, wacky too. They just zip him out of his studio, and he's just standing there like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, this is this is similar to like uh, Grant Morrison meeting Buddy yeah. Baker and Animal Man. You know, this this, but you know, this might be some of John Byrne's earliest fourth wall breaking uh, yeah. stuff right here. So it's 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 definitely notable, and this is a, it's a pretty great story too. Um, Sue, Sue Richards has a miscarriage. This just got so weirdly complicated. Yeah. Uh, this was Fantastic Four, number 267, June 84. It was ultimately undone when Franklin, Franklin, Franklin Richards' reality warping powers, he was sent to, she was sent to another, an alternate reality, and then came back as Valeria Richards. And in that alternate reality, or she was raised uh, by a heroic Doctor Doom. A, you know, it was... Who, who was married to Sue, yeah. It's, uh, you know, she comes up now, and it's almost like we can kind of, like, move past all this. But I remember when this happened, I just had no... I was like, what the hell is going on? It was so so weird it, and uh, confusing. Because I think it was Claremont who brought her back, and she was a young adult around the turn of the century. That, that was... I, I'm, like, remembering was, the issue and thinking, like, this yeah. is... Like, how did she get older? You know, it's just like, what happened? Uh I wonder if it was like a dig at, at Burn or something to do this, but <laughs> Who I don't knows? Know. Whatever it was, I don't hate the character now, so I'm, I guess I've kind of gotten over it. And of course, sure. uh, he brings back Jean Grey in Fantastic mm -hmm. Four, number 286, January 1986. She's found in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. Uh, this is part of the lead-up to X-Factor number one, and the issue credits read by you-know-who instead of by John Byrne. Uh, why is that? I, I don't know if it was an act of defiance because he didn't want to bring Gene back. But, ah. but I, I, I talked to Kurt Busiek a couple of months ago, and he said that, that Byrne was the one who passed it on to, uh, was it Bob McCloud who uh, wrote X Factor at Start? That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, he's the one who, who's like, hey, you want Gene back? I know a guy who can get you Gene back. So I, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know what he, but I, I just know it's notable that it's the only issue of his run where it just says written and drawn by you know who yeah, or guess who or something like it's that. Not, it's not you know it's not his final issue. It's not far from his no. final issue, but it's not his final issue. So it's yeah. it's weird he uh, did that. But anyway, yeah, I'm sure he had his reasons. Yeah, and th this was the way that they were able to make it so Jean Grey was absolved of the sins of killing the asparagus people because she was never there. Right, it was it, it was the whole it was the dark phoenix. It was the dark phoenix entity yeah. who just took her form. It was parallax um, in another universe. <laughs> it was it was a big yellow space bug. Um, now we mentioned that uh, Byrne and Claremont had, their relationship got a bit contentious here, and uh, they uh, well Byrne <laughs> threw digs towards Claremont during his Fantastic Four run. Um, there was an issue of uh, X Men where uh, Doctor Doom shows up, and uh, 
Byrne would he would change the story here. It was a Uncanny X Men number one forty six, June nineteen eighty one. So this is just after Byrne left. Yeah. And it wouldn't. I don't know that it would have been a dig towards Byrne as, because I don't know that he had taken over Fantastic Four yet, or even if it would have mattered. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think Claremont just thought this was a you know okay thing to do. You know. Yeah, because cause he had arc. You know, the character Arcade, the guy who runs Murder World, the redhead guy, he strikes a match on Doom's armor. And, uh, you know, which would be, you know, you wouldn't think about doing that these days, but back then, I guess, maybe. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Doom didn't really react to it, which is something that John Byrne thought that should never have ever, ever, ever happened. So he retconned that Doom into a Doombot, a malfunctioning Doombot, Doombot. And uh, this was uh, this was all came to uh, to a head in Fantastic Four number two hundred fifty eight. Okay, now the uncanny issue was June nineteen eighty one. This issue is September nineteen eighty three. This is a special all Doom issue of Fantastic uh, Four. Unbelievable though. Two years later, you know, like over two years later, he's been holding on to this for so long. Is so mad at this at this thing that I don't, I don't think that was a dig at burn, but I think you know maybe it was. A mischaracterization. I mean, it was obviously yeah. to show that Arcade has, you know, major cojones. That was the main... Yeah. That was the point of that, but Byrne obviously could not sleep for two years thinking about it. He just <laughs> couldn't get over it. He had this idea. I bet he had this idea, like, right away, and he just held on He's to it waiting for the spot. Opportunity. Yeah. He's chewing a hole in his mouth for, two, <laughs> for the side of his mouth for two years. Wow. Oh boy, that's that's crazy. Um, now another one, another instance here is Fantastic Four number two hundred forty, March nineteen eighty-two. The Fantastic Four, they're helping the Inhumans move into their new digs on the moon. Is this the dark side of the moon or the blue area of the, the moon blue or whatever? Area, yeah. And uh, Black Bolt uses his uh, his mega voice to uh, break Attila free from uh, his its moorings, allowing it to float into where they want it. Now uh, in the panel where Attila explodes off its base, there's a caption. Now. <laughs> Byrne writes a caption and says, We're not going to insult your intelligence by place by placing a sound effect in this panel. Believe us, no mere words can convey the awesome noise of Black Bolt's single syllable. And it's signed John and Jim, which I, I'm guessing is Byrne and Shooter. I would think so, yeah. And this is a direct reference to uh, an issue of X-Men, number 119, from March 1979. <laughs> Uh, this is three years later. <laughs> three years later. <laughs> <laughs> Where Claremont, well, they, they, you know, there was an exploding volcano, and Claremont insisted that they use a sound effect for <laughs> yeah. to indicate that the, I mean, it's obvious that the volcano is exploding, but Claremont wanted a sound effect there. Byrne was not happy. And this may have been the first, you know, public inkling that they're that they didn't keep, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't thick as thieves at this point. Yeah, apparently Byrne would go around to anyone at this point. And he was complaining about this like, to any <laughs> any fan magazines, anybody at a convention, anybody in the industry, and it was like, that's not that big a deal, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah, it's like it's like one panel with a volcano. Yeah, take a, take <laughs> really? a chill pill, bro. <laughs> and uh, Byrne left Fantastic Four in the middle of a storyline. Um, Due to differences with Jim Shooter primarily, and uh, this was close to him just saying goodbye to Marvel altogether. And uh, we mentioned that his his last full issue was Fantastic Four number two ninety three, but he stuck around to, or at least they used his plots for issues what was two ninety four and two ninety five. Yeah, I think he also plotted two ninety five, but it was written, yeah, and those written by were Roger Stern. By Stern, so we don't know if that was you know plots that were hanging around, or they just knew where he was heading, or if he just stuck around. Um, yeah, so that was. Uh, 
that was Burns' time with the with the first family. Yeah, which is one of my favorite runs right there. I'm, I'm a, oh, it's I'm, wonderful. I got to say, pretty much my two runs that I, I like are uh, Lee Kirby and that one. I, I'm not a really big fan of much much more beyond that, but I can't profess to be an expert. But I do know the Mark Wade run is okay, but uh, the the Burn one really holds up. Yeah, I, mean, I guess it seems the most Silver Age to me, you know, and I, I just love that era of uh, pretty much everything that came out of Marvel from you know, the yeah. 60s, so I think it just really likens to me. But another fan favorite that uh, John Byrne doesn't feel as warmly about is Alpha <laughs> Flight. There, I, I, By the way, they're going to have a trade release, I think, this year or late, early next year, uh, oh. which I think is their first trade release in like 30 years. So hop on that, folks, if you want to know what this is about. <laughs> Their first appearance was X-Men number 20, 120, sorry, uh, April 1979, and they were never intended by John Byrne to have in their, their own title. Uh, he said, quote, Alpha Flight, the team, were never really meant to be anything more than a bunch of superheroes who could survive a fight with the X-Men. They had no real depth, and I resisted suggestions that they get their own book for a couple of years. Then finally, realizing Marvel would probably get someone else to do it if I didn't, I relented and agreed. A first issue came out in August 83, so he did hold off for quite a while. Uh, he did. Four years, but it sold 500,000 issues. So how, that's how about that? Pretty dang good. People obviously wanted to really get their hands on this. Uh, these were characters created while John Byrne was a fan. So, mm-hmm. you know, he had been bubbling them around in the back of his mind for a long time. Uh, in Alpha Flight number six is a famous thing, January 84. It had you know, five pages of completely blank panels illustrating a battle taking place in a blizzard, the proverbial, uh, you know, uh, polar bear fighting in a blizzard type yep. scenario. And it was, it was blank pages with word balloons on them and I believe some sound effects. Uh, JB, John Byrne, received his full page rate and Shooter agreed it was an artistic choice. Crazy. Uh, one member of Alpha Flight was uh, a character named North Star. According to John Burney, always intended North Star to be gay. North Star is out now, out of the closet. Is he even in the Marvel universe? I'm not sure, but I assume if he is, he was with the he was with the X Men for a while. I don't know where he is yeah, now. I feel like he was around recently, but yeah, he's 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 out there somewhere, and he uh, he's officially gay. But at this time, it was just sort of implied because uh, he had to skirt the Comics Code Authority. Um, mm-hmm. But he did give little su- subtle hints, and he kind of had a sort of a sensitive. Uh, he had an air about him. An air yeah. about him, a good way to put it. Uh, oh, and here we John go. Byrne, he was great with the subtlety here. It was because, uh, I mean, you could read into it if you wanted to. But if you, know, if you, if you weren't thinking that way or if you weren't thinking about it at all, because well, really at the end of the day it doesn't matter. It, it's <laughs> but, interesting. Uh, yeah, I know. It, it's, not, it's not what they need to show yeah. or that John Byrne would even show him having any yeah. kind of graphic sex anyway. So you thought <laughs> it's just going to be a person. But it's interesting that a guy who in 1970 was doing uh, the gay guy comic for the Alberta yes. College of Art, now he's uh, obviously his uh, opinions, his you know feelings have become a little more refined and nuanced. Uh, he would eventually come out in Alpha Flight number 106, March 1992. That was written by Scott Lobdell. And it, that was done to facilitate an HIV-AIDS awareness issue, which... Uh, today probably sounds very insulting, uh, and, it, and yes. it, it is somewhat insulting. But you gotta, you know, you gotta realize that there was a lot of traction at the time uh, uh, trying to stop HIV and AIDS. And is this around the time that Magic Johnson came out? This is very much around that time. This yeah. is also, you know, uh, free condoms in the schools. I mean, yep. let me tell you, this is when I went to high school right here, and it was it was horrible because there was no way you could get laid. 
That was it. There was just it, was, it just could not happen. You know, it was like I don't think I don't think women wore skirts again, or you know, until like 1995. Um, I remember, like I was in school. I was I was in junior high at this time, but uh, it was New York City, so it was like there were three certainties. It's like you're gonna get AIDS, you're gonna join a gang, and you're gonna get hooked on drugs. Yeah, <laughs> that was high school. That's that was... right. Hopefully, hopefully in that order. That's what they were uh, planning on. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there at the time it. Uh, the rumors did swirl around that he was going to come out as being infected with HIV slash AIDS, but that didn't happen. Yeah, because they, you know, it was actually he adopted a child who had AIDS or had okay. HIV at the time, and uh, it, I think the stories got conflated because, spoiler alert, nobody read Alpha Flight after John Byrne left. Yeah, really. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this issue one hundred and six is is among those few issues that people bought because they thought it was going to be something. Yeah. Um, so people were they they got this story you know a little tangled and it was like oh well he must have AIDS and it's like no it was it was a baby here it was a baby a sex a a neither yeah, heterosexual it, nor homosexual baby don't worry it about got it. it it caught it in the womb yeah. so it was uh, you know um, after Alpha Flight he he only stays on Alpha Flight for I think twenty eight issues or twenty seven issues because uh, he trades gigs with uh, the guy who's writing the Hulk at the time a fellow by the name of Bill Mantlo. And uh, Mantlo took over Alpha Flight, uh, and Byrne took over Incredible Hulk with oh. issue number 114. Uh, he stayed on very, very briefly. He stayed on from December of 85 to May of 86, only doing issues 314 through 319 and uh, the 14th annual for, uh, for Incredible Hulk. He felt that the character had drifted too far from his beginnings and sought to bring him back to basics. And initially, uh, editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was uh, very receptive and agreeable. And, of course, this is all from Byrne. Um, however, once he was on the book, his tone changed. Uh, he is quoted as saying, Betrayal would be an excessively strong word for what happened. I took on the Hulk after discussing with Shooter, in which I mentioned some of the things I would like to do with the character, given the chance. He told me to do whatever was necessary to get, to get on the book. He liked my ideas so much. I did, and once... And once installed, he immediately changed his mind. You can't do this. Six months, six issues was as much as I could take, and that's something he said uh, on CBR in 2000. Uh, isn't it weird that he starts to saying betrayal would be excessively strong? Then use a, <laughs> use a less strong word. Like why? <laughs> why do you say that? You know what I mean? Well, you know, Jim. Uh, not... A harsh way to put it would be Jim Shooter is a fucking son of a bitch. You know? Like... I'm not. I'm not saying he's a communist. <laughs> but. but... <laughs> That would be that but, uh, would be overboard if I said that. And and what's interesting here is he wanted to bring the Incredible Hulk back to basics. And in his last issue, he has Bruce Banner and Betty Ross get married. Yeah, which couldn't be less basics as far as yeah, that. yeah. Back to basics would be you know her back with Glenn Talbot and General Ross and Talbot trying to track down the Hulk. That's you know, true. Yeah, that it. would be that would be you could take it back to the beginning. <laughs> and uh, this uh, he leaves uh, in issue you know a three nineteen and. It would just be a, uh, less than a year later that Peter David would pop on and start his legendary decade-long run with the character. Yeah, that is an amazing run. I'm not a. I'm, oh, it's I'm awesome. By no means am I a Hulk fan. I but that's the run that I know the best is Peter David's it's, run. Oh, it's awesome. It's the most. I mean, I've read issues here and there, and I probably read the first. You know, the first four issues in some reprint in my life. Um, so now you know, he didn't just work for Marvel during this time. He also did some work for DC. Uh, first starting in 1980, July 1980, he put out the Untold Legend of the Batman number one. This was written by Len Wein 
And uh, John Byrne's idea was he was going to take this job during a three-month window, uh, during which time his Marvel contract had elapsed. He's literally just take, you know, taking on a sliver of work just to cover the gap here. They're like, this guy is not lazy, at least not... not He's a worker. No, yeah. he, he gets down to work. Uh, he didn't get the plot until the second month of the time off, though. <laughs> so it, things, things, the time crunch was real, and Byrne told Paul Levitz, with that time would have been the editor-in-chief, that he couldn't finish the job. They offered him double the Marvel page rate, but initially they said they couldn't even match that rate to begin with. So he was really pissed off. And this mm-hmm. kept him away from DC Comics for many years until something monumental happened. Uh, later on, he would do a book called The Man of Steel. But before we talk about that, we want to do a little refresher. We talked about this on a much, much earlier episode yes. of Weird Comics History when we were still part of the regular podcast. Um, I think it was the second, I think it was our second outing. That's right, because first yeah. was Implosion. So yeah, it was probably the yep. second thing. This is when um, Jim Shooter pitched to Marvel executives the idea of purchasing DC and or coming to an agreement to put out their comics and license their characters. Uh, that was 1984. DC came close to licensing their characters to Marvel. And uh, John Byrne had done an, an entire uh, pitch for Superman. He did a full cover, and he had plotted yep. a whole issue, and he had a whole plan of how he wanted Superman to be reimagined for Marvel. Um, and a lot of it was very similar to what we would see later in Man of Steel. So that was in 1986, am I right? Or was it 85? Yeah. Uh, this it was, was after, it was post-crisis. That's right, so it's post-crisis. This is right after Crisis. This is his, I'm going to put it in quotes, reboot uh, hmm. of Superman. I don't, even, I don't even know if it needs to go into quotes, really, but it's, yeah. it's not a reboot the way... Today, a reboot is a number one issue that the whole universe has changed. You know what I mean? I, I guess that's what it was. I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's a little bit different. It seems to... Yeah, they, to they be, take with them some it stuff. It seems yeah. to be... Le- uh, Less, more seamless with the with what had come, but there were a lot of big changes. Um, originally, he was going to work both Marvel and DC gigs, but Jim Shooter said no, and he said, "Well, screw that." Um, it was his <laughs> dream as a child to do Superman, and he said, "Quote: I'm taking Superman back to the basics. It's basically Siegel and Schuster Superman meets the Fleischer Superman 1986." So here's how, here's some things that he reimagined where Mon Pa Kent were alive. Uh, which yep. uh, which was a pretty cool aspect. Definitely differentiated him sharply from Batman, uh, which is you know yeah. a, a DC thing. Uh, Kal-El was now sent to Earth in a birthing matrix. Um, and you know what's funny? Um, he he claims that he did not get this idea from Donner's Superman. <laughs> I read so. I mean, you had to. You know what I mean? Like I don't understand how you can say that. Like that's what happened to Donner Superman. And, he was, and what would have been the trouble of saying he did? That's the you thing. Know, exactly. Like, he's, like, he's not. He's not going to come out and sue you. But it's like it's so obvious that there, there's a, there's some kind of a connection there. But anyway, uh, so he was sort of getting you know growing and being educated on his way down uh, to Earth from Krypton, and he made him identify more as an Earthling. There was not a lot of that you know great row type stuff that you that yeah. he was so popular in the seventies. Uh, and even the beginning of the 80s, frankly, where he really was uh, identifying as a Kryptonian. He established that whole new Krypton series that we read a little bit of uh, on <laughs> Cosmic Treadmill a couple of weeks ago. Um, but Burns' quote was, Krypton is anathema to him. Uh, so that was a cool... I, li- I like that. And Chris and I are both fans of this uh, Yeah. This run right here. Uh, I think he only did 11 issues, right? 
uh, uh, of, uh, Superman, he did uh, 22. He was there for two years. But I think Man of Steel was was a sh- uh, maybe uh, maybe I'm getting it. It was wrong. just a six issue mini. Yeah, it was just a mini. That's why. But uh, it's great. It, it, it's worth grabbing if you can get. I'm sure there's a trade in the world out there. It's uh, oh, there's hundreds of different trades of that. <laughs> I, I always remember the uh, the the Bizarro issue with with uh, Lucy Lane. Do you remember this yep. one? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it was issue was four. Sight. I don't know. It's like that, that always struck me. I think because I'm also just a big Bizarro fan. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this was a, a big change in Superman, and people were really receptive to it. You know, Burns' uh, cachet could not have been greater at this time. He was definitely very popular, so it was working out. Oh, for yeah. Him. Yeah, because uh, he was uh, uh, something that uh, I, when, I, when I was talking to Kurt Busiek, he said that John Byrne had the highest page rate at Marvel before he left. Oh, I'm sure. So, I mean, he was, he was the top guy. You yeah. know, so this was... You know, this is like uh, not unlike you know Brian Bendis saying, "Oh, I'm doing Batman next year." You know, it's it's a uh, you know he's a the big guy. People would freak um, out, yeah. Yeah, people would go nuts. And uh, after Man of Steel, he uh, actually has his own Superman number one. They uh, they changed the name of uh, Superman to Adventures of Superman, and they started a brand new Superman with issue one, Superman volume number two. Um, now, some some of the important uh, an important thing that he did, and this is the one that always sticks with me, is the uh, Supergirl saga. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny how, you know, the crisis wiped all that stuff out. It's wiped out Superboy. It wiped out Supergirl. Superman was the last the last son, officially. And uh, here you have uh, Superman go to the pocket universe where Superboy did live. Because yeah. Superboy... Which was, which was created to justify the Legion of Superheroes, right? The Legion of Superheroes, right? yeah. Yes, uh, the time trapper wanted to make sure that he did. He went so far as to, in this pocket universe, destroy everything but Earth and Krypton, <laughs> because he had to make sure <laughs> he had to make sure that uh, that that the, the events went down the way he wanted them to. <laughs> and, uh, okay. Yes, and this Supergirl is a the Matrix Supergirl, uh, who was designed by the pocket universe version of Lex Luthor, who is a hero in this story. He's a like a revolutionary. Yeah. And uh, the story ends with uh, Superman killing a couple, uh, uh, actually a trio of pocket universe uh, villains, criminals, um, or phantom zone criminals, actually, uh, including General Zod. Yeah. And uh, big change. That would be, yeah, it's a huge change. And that would be his, his actually his swan song on that title, uh, or with the Superman books. Um, along the way, he did a, a trio of miniseries, uh, World of Krypton, World of Smallville, World of Metropolis, all focusing on a different aspect of his life yeah. or his environment, I suppose. And he, he wrote all those. He didn't draw. I don't think he drew yeah. any of them, did he? No. I don't or did think he did he Krypton? Maybe he did one. But he, he didn't. I, he, I, he, if he did him, he did one and didn't draw the others because that's, even that's too much work for John Byrne. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, he took over uh, Action Comics when uh, when he took over the Superman books, and it was changed from a regular book to a team up book. So every issue he would team up with a different uh, a different superhero in this new DC landscape. Um, I love this wrote, run, by the way. A lot of people, oh, it was awesome. you know, they talk about the, the weekly run was cool, but this was this was one of my favorite things. These weekly, it reminded me of DC Comics Presents. Yeah, uh, which it's, was really they the took same over kind for of it, thing. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it basically took over. That like one month he'd be with Hawkman, the next month he'd be with uh, Martian Manhunt. It was yeah. it was a fun time. It was cool. And, yeah, and it went until issue six hundred, uh, and because with six oh one it did go into that weekly anthology format, where Superman it, they changed the Superman portion to like almost a Sunday newspaper strip. Yeah, it was it was definitely an interesting experiment. It was it's cool in its own way. 
Yeah. And uh, perhaps the most famous or infamous story of this run it happens in issues 592 and 593 in which Superman and Big Barda, Big, I'm sorry, Big Barda, they make a porno. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> bow, wow. That was uh, September to October 1987. Uh, the villainous sleaze gets the pair into the porno game. And, and I, I love the opening of, of the, I think it's the second part, where Darkseid is just sitting in, in Mr. Miracle's uh, oh, yeah. living room. That's one of the most classic, <laughs> just sitting on an easy chair. Just have, He's just sitting The there. idea of Darkseid just chilling in your living room is so awesome. You know, like, <laughs> I was waiting for you, Mr. Miracle. Mr. <laughs> Free. And it's great because somehow Darkseid... He comes into possession of the porno video that Barda made. Yeah, he's just fucking it's with him. Like, he's like, he's like, hey, one of my guys was uh, was hanging out in Suicide Slum inside a CD store, and <laughs> check out what he found. I saw your wife's tits. What do you think of that? And much more. <laughs> Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, Burn. Uh, he has a quote about this. He says, "If you want it to be a porno flick, it was a porno flick. If you don't." It wasn't, because it was received with a little bit of controversy. Yeah, fair enough, I guess. But come on, sure. we know what you were trying to imply right there. Of uh, course. You know, these uh, the, the, actually, the Action Comics Superman team-up books, um, I really, I, I wish those could be collected in the anthologies that they originally were, but they haven't been. They're, I think no. some of the Superman stories have been collected, and I think some of the Green Lantern has been collected in, in some kind of, a, a you know, various stories of the Green Lantern Edition or something like that, but yeah, it would be awesome if this got like some kind of a uh, deluxe treatment. But I'm dreaming because no one likes anthology titles except for me. <laughs> so, Adventures of Superman, he took over after Marv Wolfman left the title. Uh, there was some contention over how Lex Luthor should be reimagined. Wolfman had originally pitched the wealthy businessman aspects rather than the pre crisis mad scientist. Uh, Wolfman said, uh, Oh, does this John Byrne said this? This is uh, Wolfman's quote. Wolfman said, uh, I wanted something a bit more nuanced. My version hated Superman because Luther used to be a god in Metropolis until Superman appeared. Lois Lane was also his fiancée, and again until Superman showed up. In one moment, he lost everything that was important to him. Uh, Byrne took full credit for this creation, or at least he never corrected anyone who attributed it to him. Uh, he claimed to have taken the kernel of the idea from Wolfman, literally... Just the four-word seed, the world's richest man. That's all he claims. That's all he took from Wolfman. Uh, everything else was his own creation, and that Wolfman created a, had received a bonus for creating Luther, which was kept from uh, John Byrne at the time. That DC paid some kind of a backdoor deal to Wolfman. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I read quite a bit about this exchange um, when I was researching this, and it, it really seems. Uh, one of these things we don't know who, who's who's telling the truth here because he told this story how uh, Wolfman called him on the phone and like said that I'm gonna pitch you an idea for Luther and either you use the whole thing completely yeah. or you use none of it. Don't use none of it. Yeah. And uh, Burns said, "All right, go ahead, shoot." And he started, you know, saying Lex Luther lives on a uh, hill outside of Metropolis in some giant mansion, and and Lois is his. Uh, girlfriend or whatever his uh, you know concubine concubine yeah and uh, Byrne said oh, I don't want I, I have other plans for Lois and Marv Wolfman immediately said oh well you don't have to use that part it just you know what I mean it's like it's very portrays Marv Wolfman being very uh, not beholden to story and and we know him to be someone pretty beholden to story on the other hand yes. Marv Wolfman has his version of events too so of course we don't know really what happened but 
Uh, he, John Byrne says he came up with adding Adventures of to the title of Adventures of Superman uh, to evoke the George Reeves TV series. Um, Byrne left the books because he felt he was getting no editorial support. This is pretty much the end of his time at DC. It was really two years, right? That was all it was. Uh, yeah. And uh, denied a lot of his proposed changes when Warner Brothers would disapprove of them because they had licensing needs. And he even said, quote, uh, DC hired me to revamp Superman and then immediately chickened out. They backed off at the first whiff of fan disapproval, which came months before anyone had actually seen the work. During the whole two years I was on the project, nothing, although nothing happened that was not approved by DC Editorial, there was no conscious support. At, they even continued to license the previous Superman. At one point, Dick Giordano said, You have to realize there are now two Supermen, the one we you do and the one we license. Seemed counterproductive, to say the least, since far more people saw the license material. After two years of this nonsense, I was just worn down. The fun was gone. And that was on uh, Comic Book Resources in 2000, a pretty monumental interview, if you can find it. Yeah, you got you got a feel for him. You know, they 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 you know they poach him from Marvel for this huge huge project, and then they they half-heartedly back it. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, you almost hate to say it, but this is not an uncommon thing at DC oh, sure. over the years. It really, it's not yeah. an uncommon thing at both companies to some extent. But in the industry, you do, yeah, you do find that DC got cold feet on a lot of things. I mean, you know. Uh, you know, it, right up to Flash where we are now. dying, and look where <laughs> we are now. I mean, now they they're constantly changing course, constantly uh, reacting instead of, as my uh, first boss in publishing would say, being proactive. You're being <laughs> reactive and not proactive. So anyway, uh, it was even though I'm telling you though that that Man of Steel miniseries and even a lot of his Superman issues are great. It's solid, and, and I love and and I am I think in a. Uh, vociferous but small minority of people that really liked Matrix Supergirl and liked that whole oh, storyline. Yeah. It was just so there was a lot of stuff with uh, Star Labs and you know they brought mm-hmm. back like a lot of the Newsboy Legion and stuff. So it, it was a cool time to oh, be reading fantastic. it. Yeah. This is definitely my version of Superman. You know, this is where I I didn't come in here, but this is this is what I think. This is my Superman's origin, basically. I'd, I'd agree with that. Probably, you know what? It's funny. I would think of this Superman as far as like. Uh, his backstory, but in my mind, it's always a Kurt Swan face. I just can't help it. It's like, <laughs> probably, probably more from having bought, you know, merchandise sure. over the years than anything else. And it's funny. Uh, do you remember the uh, the house ad they ran for the first issues post burn? No. What did it, it was, say? In giant words on top, they say it's burnout. B-U-R-N out. <laughs> <laughs> what? Weird. All right. it's, it's Superman sitting on a sitting on a chair. It's 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 basically him uh, dealing with the ramifications of having killed. And uh, Superman starts losing his mind. He actually he adopts a new a new heroic identity of gangbuster. It's a very strange time, a very interesting time too. But the, uh, the I remember house I remember the gangbuster thing. And yeah. The gangbuster <laughs> the house picked ends. up by someone else, right? Yeah, it became a Delgado, right. Jose Delgado, I think it was, something like that. Um, and yeah, the, on, uh, on top of that house, it burnout. Unbelievable! <laughs> like, wow, that's funny. Um, another uh, another thing he did at DC before leaving, or actually at the same time, it was a uh, DC Legends, which was the first post-crisis crossover. He provided art for uh, John Ostrander's uh, writing. And this is an interesting one. This is a, it's almost Civil War before Civil War, but, you know, the, the heroes stay together because that's what heroes should do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
this one, uh, Ronald Reagan orders the uh, he orders like a, almost a registration act. Yeah. He banned heroes, basically. And uh, this was all stoked by an apocalyptian by the name of Glorious Godfrey. Uh, he was in the here. He was known as G. Gordon Godfrey, which uh, mm, so similar yeah. to another name I know from the FBI. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and because uh, yeah, his his son uh, actually uh, his son actually had a talk radio show out here for a long time. Oh, really? Tom Liddy. Yeah, Tom oh, Liddy. Interesting. Yeah, we're talking about G. Gordon. Buddy, yeah, of in case you don't know uh, your American history, that's who it was. Yes, and uh, he stirred up panic. Basically, he was stoking the flames of this just this superhero. Uh, uh, with paranoia, basically, mm. and uh, from out of legends, uh, some of the more important things: the uh, the Max Lord version of the Justice League. They uh, they spun out of it. Mm. This is the Justice League International, the, yeah, the you know the Blue Beetle, yep. yeah, and also the uh, you know the Waller version of Suicide Squad, which is a hot issue right now. Oh yeah, it's it's sort of what we're seeing now in the theaters in a way. Walt, the Waller's like that. I'll tell you that much. It's very similar yep. to the one from the comics. So. Uh, uh, this was I. I really love this uh, this miniseries. Um, it was great. It, you know, it's it's funny. I know Ostrander wrote it, so it's not really John Burns' politics, but it's probably is one of the few times. I guess you could also say it, uh, Days of Future Past. Did he did he do that X Men? Uh, God loves, right? Man no, kill, that was God kills man. That whatever was uh, who was that was a that was that that a Bolton is it? I don't know. I, I, was, I know Claremont wrote it. That was all. Yeah, Claremont wrote it. I think it was Bolton that did the audio. It was someone that, that Claremont had collaborated with a few times. But I mean, but this, it wasn't burned. This Legends, you know, for, in the late 80s has a lot of like su- not so subtle and subtle political commentary, you know, oh, going totally. back to, you know, the allusions to G. Gordon Liddy and everything. And it's not mm-hmm. really something you would associate John Byrne with. He's sort of an apolitical guy at this time in his yeah. life uh, that would change <laughs> later on as we're going to talk about but anyway uh, I'm almost positive this is collected too but whatever it's worth it's worth getting it is. it's not a lot of issues I don't even, I doubt it's even a ton of money if the copies aren't mint so uh, Un- unless the uh, unless the new Suicide Squad fervor uh, kicks in because this is technically their first appearance that's true that's right this would be their their start so I don't know maybe but it is available in trade I believe it's available digitally it's, it's, it's worth checking out it's good stuff and then this sort of uh, forms a change in John Byrne's career sort of after this point, after he leaves DC. Uh, but we're going to get to that after a little break. Chris and I have to go, you know, brush our teeth and uh, wash <laughs> our uh, armpits, and we'll be right mm-hmm. back to give you the second half of John Byrne's life. The Camp Kids Club 25. Glad you're with us today because I bet you there's a lot of boys and girls out there that have looked at a comic book. Well, if you've looked at some X-Men comic books, I bet you you may have seen some artwork by comic book artist John Byrne. And we had a chance to visit with John Byrne recently. Just take a look at this. And welcome back to Camp Kids Club 25. We're on location with a very special guest today. Our guest is John Byrne from Dark Horse Comics. Welcome to Camp Kids Club 25. Oh, thank you, Ranger. It's good to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And tell us, how did you first get involved in comic uh, drawing? Well, I've read comic books since I was just a little kid. I grew up in England, first saw comics there. Moved to Canada, saw more comics. And then one day, I guess I was about 21 years old or so, I was in college, and I suddenly thought, people do this for a living. People draw comics and get paid for it. Maybe I can do that. And that was pretty much how I got into it. 
Okay, so uh, you waited until your college years uh, to get started. Well, how did you first get involved in comic book drawing? As I say, I've, I've been reading them all my life. I've been doodling, drawing the characters just like all kids do in the margins of my notebooks and all that in school when I should have been studying. And uh, eventually uh, reached a point where I felt that I was good enough that I could actually submit my work, send in my work to the publishers, which are mostly based in New York in those days. And they looked at it and they said, you're terrible, go away. But I kept sending it in and eventually I wore them down and they gave me work. So persistence pays off. Persistence always pays off. So you're also a writer. How did you make that transition? I've always thought of myself pretty much as a, a writer who draws rather than a, an artist who writes. And I, I really wanted to be a famous novelist when I grew up. And I managed to get a couple of novels published finally. But they're real scary kids, so don't read them until you're about 18. And... Uh, they were fairly successful, and I've got an editor at uh, Dell Books who keeps chasing after me saying, when can I get another one? And I say, well, when I don't have so much comic book stuff to do, I'll write another novel. And we are back to Burn, everybody. So we're talking about John Byrne today on Weird Comics History, and uh, we left off. He had just kind of stormed off from DC Comics in a huff because they weren't giving him... They, they'd actually, you know, changed the job they told him that he would have to revamp Superman, and they kind of tied his hands and didn't give him the freedom he wanted, so he went back to Marvel, where I'm sure they embraced him with open arms. By now, too, Jim Shooter was gone, right? I uh, believe so. Or he, he was soon to be gone. It, maybe it was 90 or something like that. Uh, I think the Falco was running it now. So, yeah, that, that probably helped to ease him back in, since that was the, the fella he had the most trouble with. Uh, first thing he did back to Marvel in uh, ni January 1988 to April 1989, cover dates was the Star Brand, issues 11 through 19, this was part of Marvel's new universe, which was sort of a, uh, this wouldn't be a reboot, this was like a, just a new universe within this a new, yeah. the Marvel universe, though, you know, it was like, just they wanted to introduce a whole bunch of new characters, this was a shooter edict, too, so I wonder, it, was, it was one of his crowning yeah, jewels, yeah. This was <laughs> a, uh, I wonder, I, you know, what the transition was like here, I wonder if it literally, shooter was walking out as Byrne walked in, you know, that's almost like, it almost seems like it must have happened at almost the exact same time. <laughs> Um, famous in issue number 12, he destroys Pittsburgh because that's Jim Shooter's hometown. And <laughs> screw Jim Shooter, you know, just wanted to destroy an entire American city. Uh, Avengers West Coast, March 1989 to April 1990, he did issues 42 to 57. Changed it from West Coast Avengers to Avengers West Coast because that was just much better in every way for some reason. Uh, that it would was, make it easier to find. Uh, that, but that was, you know, it, it does. It does put it in the front. It puts it with the other Avengers books in theory. But uh, it seems a little bit spurious, especially since it already had had fifty issues as the West Coast <laughs> Avengers. But anyway, that, not the, not the worst thing uh, in his he ever did. Uh, brought back the Golden Age Human Torch, Jim Hammond. That's the android Human Torch. The used to hang out with Namor, and he kind of darkened Scarlet Witch uh, to be a less friendly, a less more witchy character, actually, much more magic-y. Uh, Turned her into a villain, briefly. For a little while, yeah, and uh, she was uh, kind of cruel, you know, it kind of made more mm -hmm. made more witchery sense to me. Uh, Vision's real origin was revealed in Vision Quest storyline in 1989. Uh, Vision and Wanda's children revealed to be a manifestation of Mephisto, that old Marvel Satan. Uh, mm -hmm. This may have been retconned via Young Avengers, uh, Wiccan and Speed characters. I don't know whether that's... I have no idea what well, they, that sentence really even means, Chris. <laughs> they're presented as, uh, as, her, as their children. And I don't know if it's hard lore or if it's just uh, 
convenient. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, like, I mean, Wiccan looks... He, he has got a very similar power set to Scarlet Witch, and Speed has a very uh, similar power set to Wanda's brother, Quicksilver. Quicksilver, yeah. Uh, looks a lot like him, too. Who knows? I'm sure now they're inhumans, if they're anything, so I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, they'd have to be. Uh, Wanda breaks down right there and briefly joins up with her then-father, at that time. Because yeah, we, we don't know if that's her father anymore. I don't think it is. I could swear um, there was something that changed in Magneto. The, the, the then father, by the way, is Magneto. Uh, yeah. I, could, I could swear they sort of changed him recently that he's a gypsy. And something like thought that. he had kids. I don't I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't I read that it. Happened, I just, that happened in Axis, I think. I saw people talking about it, so I can't really yeah. claim to know about it, but I remember people were freaking out that there had been some uh, big shift in Magneto's character. Yep, we got we to gotta get those kids in the movies, damn it. Yep. <laughs> Another thing Byrne did, uh, the sensational She-Hulk, issues 1 through 8, May yeah. 1989 to November of 89. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. This is so much fun here. Uh, he also did a story called The Christmas Tea or The Xmas Tees, in Marvel Comics Presents number 18, which was uh, May 1989. Must have, this was, must uh, have introduced his version, I guess. Of His version, I think, yeah. yeah. And this is uh, very fourth wall breaky. I mean, this is before it became kind of cliche and annoying to do that kind of thing. Well, <laughs> this al- is... Also, now she's become the character in Marvel that does that. You know, yeah, and she because she knows she's in a comic book. Yeah, slot slot had a run, and then Charles Soule had a more recent run mm-hmm. uh, where they basically she was able to sort of uh, play with the fact that she's in a comic book. But Byrne started yep. that and and brought her from a point when she was the Savage She Hulk. You yes. know, she used to just be sort of a berserker, and you know, but mm-hmm. uh, he changed all that. And and I loved this run when I was a kid. I still have the oh, original awesome. trade. That it looks like a piece of crap. Um, <laughs> But I I found it so funny, and I still find it funny. I actually probably read it not too long ago, a few years back, and I still was chuckling oh, was away, so I dig it. Yeah, and Byrne, he obviously had a, an affinity for the character. I mean, he, he added her to the Fantastic Four. That's right. He uh, When uh, after the first secret was, uh, Ben Grimm remained on Battleworld, or is I think that was what it was called, Battleworld. He stayed there. Yeah. So uh, they came back, because uh, I think uh, Sue was pregnant at this point, so it was only Reed and, and Johnny there. So when they came back, they needed a fourth member, and it was uh, it was She-Hulk. Who, who has about and, the same kind of you know power set as Ben? Sure, Grimm, she's you know, the bruiser, yeah. strong as hell and plowing through walls. And but and now that's something that's happened in Fantastic Four a few times. Hickman did it right. Uh, yep. Fraction did it. So, Burn, yeah, like Burn Storm and Storm and Black Panther were on the team, and they they change up the team now. Uh, well, I mean, there isn't a team anymore. Yeah, they don't do anything with it now. Yes, but uh, yeah, this is a uh, Burn brought her onto the team, and it was a pretty big deal for the time. And uh, he left the book after eight issues for the first time, and it was taken over. I know immediately it was taken over by Steve Gerber. I don't know how long he stayed on because he doesn't really stay on things very long. Usually, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is. It's famous that uh, Byrne came back in issue number thirty-one, which features a, a very iconic cover of him trying to hammer the number nine <laughs> over the number thirty-one. He wanted uh, he wanted to pick up where he left off, and uh, it has uh, him slung over the shoulder as She-Hulk. She's trying to drag him away. He's holding a hammer, and uh, you know the Marvel corner box basically <laughs> that he was going to hammer over, complete with the Comics Code Authority seal. Wow. <laughs> it's very funny stuff. And, you know, thinking about it, I wonder if that was meta-commentary against Steve Gerber because 
his whole thing when he came back to Howard the Duck is that he wanted to make it, he wanted to pick up Howard the Duck where he left off. Yeah. That was like a big bone of contention for him coming back. To gloss over, you know, everything that had been written since, yeah. Um, Yeah, he wanted to make it into like, you know, that that was a movie or something. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, the real stories of Howard the Duck are continuing now. I mean, you know what's funny about it is it can can go either way because Byrne is such a guy that either he actually would want to just continue his story from where he left off and he would want to dig at someone that he thought was being precious so yes. <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of, you know, it lo- it looks that it's the, is it a duck or a rabbit? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> and he would stay on for uh, another couple of years. He uh, this is September 1991 to April of uh, 1993. Uh, he would uh, also the same. He's a very very busy guy. Yeah. He he did a a, a series of Namor the Submariner uh, issues one through twenty five, April 1990 to April 1992. And this is a submariner, not not so much reimagined, but just in a different stage of his life where he's a businessman. He works for an environmentally minded company called, or he owns an environmentally minded company called Oracle Incorporated. And he also did work, a very, very busy man, on uh, Iron Man, <laughs> issues 257 to 277. This is June 1990 to February 1992. Uh, he was responsible for uh, the second Armor Wars. Mm-hmm. And he used Marvel's sliding time scale, and he uh, removed specifically the Vietnam War from Tony's origin because that would make him a bit older than they wanted him. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, was was he originally uh, was the Korean War the original? Uh, no, he, it was originally Vietnam. Uh, that was '63. You want to say right? I th- okay. I think okay. I think he was in. Uh, maybe maybe I haven't missed. Maybe I missed. No, no, I think you're right because uh, I'm trying to think if uh, he'd been Iron Man for a little while. But no, we actually see him from Jump Street, don't we? Yeah, yeah. We we see him. He, you know, he he gets uh, shrapnel near his heart and. Yeah. Uh, the communists are trying to make him build a weapon, and he he busts out of the POW camp. I'm almost positive it's it's it deals with Vietnam, which which is pretty Probably. prescient because America wasn't officially involved at the time, but there were things happening there. This wasn't like a worldwide secret that, sure. that there was a lot of conflict there, and there were American forces there. There was no formal, you know, declaration. De- yeah. Actually, there never was a formal declaration, but there was That's no true. big mobilization at that time. That would happen under Johnson, but. You can learn about that on your American History podcast, folks. <laughs> Weird American History. So, you know, all this stuff right now, he comes back to Marvel, and this is probably uh, one of the most lucrative times for the comic book industry because of speculation. Um, you know, that's really is going to be eventually a whole other uh, podcast here, but, you know, at the time, people were buying, you know, multiple copies of the same issues. This is where you start to see a lot of comics come out with multiple covers. And uh, enhanced covers, enhanced skull, yes, very enhanced foil. You got your uh, holographs, you got you know, some clever stuff, mostly a bunch of dreck. Um, this is also, <laughs> you know, right on the cusp of the image revolution. So, I can imagine that John Byrne is feeling himself pretty good right now, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, he, he seems like the golden kid, he can do no wrong, and uh, things can only go up from here, right? They can nothing, never going to come back down. That's how uh, <laughs> the economy works, so. Yes. Um, after this, he decides that's it. I'm going to go uh, solo. I'm sick of, uh, you know, taking a small piece of the pie. And he starts John Byrne's Next Men at Dark Horse. That ran from February 92 to December 94. This was originally intended to be a DC title called Freaks. Uh, it actually appeared in 1986's History of the DC Universe portfolio. So, Six years earlier. Yeah, he, he, he had this in the back of his mind. But remember, Alpha Flight was... 
you yeah. know, characters he thought of before he was even in comics. Uh, mm-hmm. So he he's had these things bubbling around for a long time. He must have a thick notebook of uh, ideas oh, he's scribbled sure. down over the years. Uh, in uh, around 1990 or 1991, he was approached by Stan Lee to be the editor in chief for a new line of Marvel comics, probably what would become the 2099 line. There was uh, Spider-Man 2099, and uh, Doom had one. Uh, there were a couple others. Punisher, this was Ravage. A, and actually, now they folded that into the regular Marvel universe. Now that I think about it, so a lot of those characters <laughs> just kind of hang out in the present because why not? Um, <laughs> John Byrne drew up a 64-page uh, pilot, a perspective. But Stan wanted more Marvel in there, so it, John Byrne didn't feel the same way. He wanted it, he wanted it to be clean, so it wouldn't really be connected to current Marvel continuity. It wouldn't give away, you know, it wouldn't predict things that had to happen. Therefore, in the present, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense to be honest with you. And this Certainly. would all get reworked into the pilot prequel for uh, John Byrne's next men called uh, Twenty One Twelve or Two Thousand One Hundred and Twelve, depending on what you like, or Two One One Two. So next man, two hundred eleven two. That's just so many ways you could say that. But uh, <laughs> the series went for thirty issues. Issue twenty one featured uh, the first full color American appearance of Hellboy, yep. which uh, is a pretty serious property for them. Still, let me tell you, it's uh, the only issue of that series I don't have. Really, that's interesting. <laughs> yep. yeah, that's probably the, yeah, that's the really tough one to get. So he had planned to return to the title after a few months hiatus, but then. The speculator bubble burst for right here in 1994. You could probably even, if we went back to it, find the day that it happened. Uh, you, you have a great story. I don't, I don't want you to tell it now, but you have a great story where it, it, it was the change from... Uh, what was the first comic you had your mom get? It was uh, The Death of Superman. Death of Superman that she went back to get something else. And uh, it, X-Men Prime, it and was, it was a totally different, yeah, it <laughs> totally was, different environment. One, at one time, she's waiting online, you know what I mean? She's there early. Next time, she walks in and out buying comic, no problem. So, I mean, this is, <laughs> Please take two. <laughs> someday, we're going we're to get into this, and it really, you're going to yes. be shocked at how rapidly it happened. So, you know, this happened, and uh, he wasn't counting on suddenly the bottom to drop out of the comics industry. So he says, quote, I set Next Men aside, fully atten- intending to return to the series in no more than six months. That was about six years ago. What I did not count on was the virtual collapse of the whole comic book industry, which seemed to occur at just the time I put Next Men on the shelf. Mea culpa? In the present, very depressed marketplace, I don't feel Next Men would have much chance. So I leave the book hibernating until such time as the market improves. Uh, that was in Comic Book Resources Year 2000. Uh, he did wind up returning to Next Men 16 years later at IDW, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah. Another uh, a few. Uh, I, th- I think they Dark Horse even opened uh, like an imprint for their uh, heavy hitter creators. Like I think Frank Miller did some stuff, and I think yes. it was like called the Icon. Yes, wasn't it? Or not, exactly not Icon? I, I think it was Icon, but they did have a separate imprint. It had like a Moai head, yeah. right? Uh huh. Or Legends, maybe, or something like that. But. Uh, uh, in there, Byrne, uh, he did a couple other uh, series here. He did uh, a series called Babe, which ran four issues, uh, July 94 to October 94, and uh, Danger Unlimited, which was another four-issue deal from uh, March 94 to June 94. And he stopped both of these earlier than he planned because, you know, the, the speculator market fell apart. Uh, he says that uh, the retailers slashed orders on anything that wasn't the number one issue. Which you could you could totally see at this point in time. Sure, so they they do it now, and with they do it reason, now yeah. certainly. 
and uh, which would, he says would make it impossible for, for anybody who is interested to follow it or many of the people who are interested to follow it to be able to. Because, you know, if there's a million issues in number one and only 30 issues in number two. Absolutely, yeah. You're leaving a lot of people out. I mean, you know, and fair enough, and I'm not saying he's wrong. However, I also remember that people weren't thrilled with this comic, you know. And as you pointed yeah. out, it's not hard to get these comics these days. So no. It's not like they were underprinted or, you know, they uh, sold out of stores before everyone got their hands on them. I think there are a lot laying, lying around, so. These are definitely, these are 25-cent box filler, <laughs> yeah. for sure. So, you know, uh, it's, like, again, a little bit from either side of the story. And, and at this point, you know, he pretty much could do whatever whatever he wants. He can do Marvel work. He can do DC work. He he pretty much does everything except image work. <laughs> um, <laughs> see here, he, he goes to DC. He does Ganthet's Tale in 1992. There's a prestige format book. Uh, it really brings the uh, the Guardian of the Universe, Ganthet. Uh, we spoke about him on the Cosmic Treadmill a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Um, That's right. With, uh, with Hal, yeah, That's doing right. his crazy thing. And uh, it, it updates a bronze, a bronze Age Green Lantern story about Krona attempting to discover the source creation. Uh, it's it's a lot. It, it, this is a lot of the foundation for the current Green Lantern lore right now. Yeah, I dig this this book a lot too. It's 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 not perfect, but it's, it's got a lot of cool things in it. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I I, I did read it probably in the mid nineties. Probably the, right it, around the time of uh, Hal breaking down. This has the connection between the Guardians and like Leprechauns. Remember that? Nice. And that one I, guy, they, he, he comes down to Earth to get, like, uh, a leprechaun named Percival, who he teaches to be a Green Lantern. Anyway, it's, it's, it's cool. It's worth checking out. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. i got to read that again. <laughs> um, Byrne makes his uh, long-awaited return to the X-Men universe here. He does uh, a very brief run on Uncanny X-Men and the second volume of X-Men. Um, this is Uncanny X-Men numbers 281 to 285 and X-Men volume 2 numbers 4 and 5. Uh, overall, uh, October 91 to February 92. Now, this follows Chris Claremont's unceremonious departure from Marvel, uh, which we might get to eventually. Yeah, there might <laughs> be some story it's, there, sure. So, I mean, it, there was, like, no pomp and circumstance. He, he put in over 10 years, and in the last panel, they have his initials and, like, it was, like, CSC 1978 to 1991 or something like that. I think that's it. <laughs> that's See, all they uh, give him. That's it. I know. It really was. He just walked away. <laughs> yep. And he did provide scripts to the first three issues of the second volume of X-Men. This is the one that was drawn by Jim Lee that sold skatey 8 million copies. Right, right, yeah. Um, Byrne would take over with four right after the that, that big Magneto storyline there. He was scripting for Jim Lee and Will Spritasio <laughs> prior to... The what they what is known as the Exodus X Dash Odus. That's when all all the you know the big name X Men artists left and they went to uh, launch Image Comics. Oh, uh, and, and, uh, and like the same day, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was, it was all the same day. This you know, was not gradual. The, this was like goodbye. Yep. See ya. <laughs> here's here's the rest of what we have done. Good luck. <laughs> and. Uh, and these, uh, he left the books uh, before they left, uh, citing that he was receiving the artwork way too close to the deadline because, you know, these guys are not these these guys are not John Byrne. Yeah. These oh, guys yeah. are. So, I mean, we have that Suicide Squad coming out with Jim Lee art pretty soon, and people are already taking bets on when's the first missed deadline. Well, yeah, I mean, he even had to cut back. At first, it was going to be he was going to do every other issue. Now he's doing. Yep. Just the, you know, every other issue is going to have a backup, the ones that he does. So, you know, this is a yeah. guy that just can't make his deadlines, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, John Byrne comes from a, a work uh, uh, 
attitude, you know what I mean? A work ethic. Yeah, ethic, yeah. A, a Jack Kirby, you know, work ethic as opposed to a Rob Liefeld work ethic, let's say. Yes. Um, now, these books were done Marvel style, so the scripts were done after the pencils were complete. So the the penciler would have their time with it, to, you know, they, they'd have a plot, and uh, then they would deliver to the to the scripter, which was Byrne. Mm. And, uh, you know, he was getting them with seconds on the clock. So uh, we have a quote here. He says, apart from the logistical nightmare working with Jim and Wills turned out... Uh, Apart from the logistical nightmare working with Jim and Wills turned out to be, the characters themselves had moved so far away from anyone I knew or wanted to know, I found absolutely no connection to them. And he left. Ushering in the era that I hold most dear. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> love this. I, I can't claim to be too familiar, but... This is the, this is, these are probably the two guys to thank or blame for hearing my... <laughs> hearing my Lame voice right now. Uh, Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicier, so they took over the titles. And uh, and after Byrne leaves and, you know, after Claremont leaves, Lee and Protasio leave. <laughs> so yep. it's like we chose these guys over Claremont, and, and now they're gone. <laughs> yeah, Marvel really got kind of screwed right here at this, this particular moment in their history. Yes. But, uh, you know, that's definitely a story for, and a great story for another day. Um, some more DC work that John Byrne did. Uh, he worked on Wonder Woman, Volume 2, number 101 to 136, September 1995 to August 1998. This run really isn't well-received. It was pretty much retconned immediately after his last issue. Uh, I think it's a little unfairly maligned, personally, but I also don't have a super strong connection to Wonder Woman. I can accept a lot oh, of, yeah. uh, you know, leeway with her origin and things like that, but he, they, they felt he changed... A lot of George Perez's very much beloved run on Wonder Woman, which took place in the mid '80s, sometime like '84 to such and such. He was uh, post-crisis. Yeah. Oh, it was so post-crisis. Oh, yeah, so it would have yeah. been '86 80, to '86-ish. Yeah. yeah. Um, John Byrne's quote again: CBR in uh, 2000. The negative responses mystified me. Mostly, they seem to come from the "anything that is different is wrong" mentality, so prevalent on the internet. But sometimes they seem to come from utter confusion. Nothing I did altered in so much as a whit what George had done, though there were some things people thought George had done which he had actually had not that I treated as presented, rather than as they thought they it had been presented. Those were viewed as changes, though in fact they were not. Mostly my whole thrust was to give the character the kind of position she really deserved in the hierarchy at DC. People would invoke the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman triumvirate, yet so often the fans dismiss Diana as a much less than second-rate character. So you see John Byrne's logic here is that it isn't that he changed or did something, it's that you misunderstood what he did. <laughs> and, uh, it's crazy that his... the. <laughs> It's almost as though he wrote the questions and the answers because he's got the perfect answer. It's like, what question could you ask to get that answer? I know, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is from an interview, so but but he he's obviously got this stuff canned, and it's it's a common refrain. It was like, yeah, you know, people complained about X. Well, what it was is that no one understood what they were seeing. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. They were wrong about everything. So. Uh, this becomes a more and more common refrain that you find uh, mm -hmm. later in, into John Byrne's career. But John Byrne did do a great thing right here that he Chris did. is very happy, was very happy about. John Byrne killed Terry Long in yes. Wonder Woman Volume 2, number 121, May 1997. And uh, there would never be another curly-haired uh, gentleman <laughs> in comics again. 
<laughs> and so, there was much rejoicing. He also did New Gods, Volume 4, number 12 through 15, November 1996 to February 1997. And uh, that turned into Jack Kirby's Fourth World, number 1 through 19, sort of turned into it. Uh, it did yeah. continue the story. March 1997 to October 1998. Uh, his plan here was to combine New Genesis and Apocalypse into a single planet. Uh, some story seeds were meant to continue in Walt Simonson's Orion run, which is a, a well-remembered and beloved run, but uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World was canceled over a year before Orion even began. Yeah. Um, Genesis crossover, the note here is blech. <laughs> so, it wasn't good. Uh, a New God story that attempted to tie the creation of the New Gods in with the birth of the superhero concerned a god wave. And on its first pass created gods, including Greek and Roman, on its second pass created superhumans. This was not well loved and ignored. And, you know, right now, these two right here, Wonder Woman and uh, the new gods and Jack Kirby stuff, and even, you know, the uh, some of the... Ex this is when I feel like the, the uh, penny has dropped for John Byrne. He's no longer the draw. He used yeah. to be, you know, it used to be, you see John Byrne's name on a comic, you get it. Yeah, that was it. He was like a definite... Now mm -hmm. people are starting to, you know, see some chink, questioning it, yeah. chinks in the armor. Um, you know, obviously, your feelings on it are your feelings. So, uh, you know, I, I've read that Wonder Woman run. I think it's quite, it's pretty good. It's uh, serviceable. It's nothing yeah, wrong with it. Not yeah. kill me, but it, you know, again, if these characters are super important to you in a certain way, uh, you can definitely take uh, a lot of personal stake into these comics. So. And uh, there's a brief note here. Uh, the the God Wave thing, I, when I was researching earlier, I forgot to add this here. I guess that was even hinted at during the during Action Comics number six hundred. Oh, really? Like Ten years before this, yeah. Because wow. there's a there's a Superman and Wonder Woman scene in there, and uh, I guess like the God Wave is either hinted at or I don't think it's outright said, but there is something something dropped to uh, to link. The formation of the gods with metahumans or superhumans. Wow! So this is following up on a thread, or even just a throwaway statement from ten years <laughs> I prior. Know. Oh my God! <laughs> this guy he, is. He hit that notebook. Yep. He is playing the long game, folks. He is not. <laughs> you know, nothing is left to waste. Um, he also did Dark Side vs. Galactus: The Hunger in 1995. Uh, he credits a fan suggestion for this story. This this was a one-off, right? Wasn't this a yeah. prestige, right? Prestige, yeah. Uh, what if Galactus tried to eat Apocalypse? This was pitched to DC, and they dug it. They got Marvel on board as well. This was a time when you actually would see some collaborations between Marvel and DC. You won't see that anymore. Yeah, any uh, old port in a storm in the mid-'90s. And uh, back then, they were like, yeah, whatever we can do to generate some money here. So uh, Byrne tried tracking down the fan to ensure he received credit for the idea, and we don't know what happened, but... I, I don't, you know, I have a feeling Byrne tried and, and stopped trying. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have it, and I never read it, so I don't know if there's any, like, if there's any, hey, thanks, dude, you know. So it very well could say the dude's full name and address, but I don't know. I, I have a feeling it, it was either very easy for him to find... <laughs> or he didn't, or he didn't find it because I don't, I can't see Byrne, you know, like hiring a private detective, you know, to find out this information. He's got Dick Grayson knocking on doors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Back at Marvel, now this is a, uh, this is quite the scene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we got Spider-Man Chapter One, 
There's a 12-issue maxi-series with an issue zero that came out after issue number six. This is December 1998 to October of 1999. Now, this series sets to not, uh, you know, I, it's it's kind of a retell. It's not so much a re reboot it's a just it's a retelling of uh spider-man's first 18 issues it's supposed to like refresh like kind of freshen them up for modern times yeah, a little bring bit them, yeah. bringing them up forward yeah bringing yeah. them in the into contemporary uh for the contemporary generation uh he claims that this was pitched to him initially as a what if series um as though like uh, a stanley and uh, i was gonna say jack kirby no uh yeah. steve ditko had planned out this entire thing in advance like if they were working from a character bible instead of kind of just you know doing it on the fly right and uh states that a lot of the uh because there's, there's a few contentious plot points in this. He says that they're, he defines them as reveals rather than changes because he says that he did not change or contradict anything that happened before, and, and that's true. Yep. Um, he, he tied Spider-Man's origin in with Dr. Octopus's, which I, I don't dig, but I can't say that they ever outright said it wasn't. <laughs> um, he made it so the Sandman was related to Norman Osborn <laughs> because they have similar hair. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> He, uh, he did remove co- the communist element from some of uh, Spidey's earliest villains, like the chameleon, because that's just not what was going on when this story was meant to be told. Um, he did make Norman Osborn responsible for damn near everything that went on, which is kind of what Marvel was doing anyway, because yeah. af- after, you know, what was it, 750 years of the Clone Saga, <laughs> it all came down to being Norman Osborn did it. Well, you know, also the connection to Green Goblet. I mean, it's funny that that's yeah. kind of what got Ditko off the title, was that yeah, that's Ditko the, didn't want him yeah. to be a known character. You want him to be someone off the street. And, uh, yeah, just, just another guy. It's like you pull the mask off, it's like, who's this guy? Which, that's, which actually, that's the way it would happen in real life. It, it's true. It's, it's very unlikely that this would be your best friend or whatever. Um, yeah. I just find it interesting that Byrne went the other way with it. You know, yeah. he, he instead he connected everything together into in Spider Man. Everyone is, you know, connected to his real his regular life. It's almost like he was making a web. Mm. <laughs> now this this run was largely ignored. Yeah. Uh, there's a story. Uh, Paul Jenkins, who came on to write the uh, Spider books uh, a little bit after the Burn Mackey reboot, he uh, he went to the Spider offices and he was asking which version of a certain character to write because they were they were they were shown differently in, in chapter one and the regular canon and he was told to ignore chapter one wow this is while chapter one was still on the shelves Ooh, that's not you know <laughs> no, uh, does not bode well uh, we've got a quote from uh burn here uh he's defensive about this and, and and almost rightfully so because i we don't know the particulars of it uh the project originated with ralph Mach- is it machio or machio i think it's machio Machio, we'll do that. Machio. I'm not sure though. The, it's it's funny because so so many of these names I've read a million times but never said them out loud. Of course, you never have to say them. <laughs> yeah, you just read about them in Wizard or whatever. Yes. Uh, okay. Now Ralph Machio, the Spider-Man editor, who thought it might be a good idea to tweak some of the more dated elements of Spidey's origin. Nothing that wasn't broke was fixed. The origin and the interpersonal relationships of the characters remained precisely the same. Only the window dressing was altered. Fan reaction, by the way, was much more positive than some seemed to think. Sales were good, mail was good, and only a few loud and repetitive cyber geeks <clears throat> gave the illusion that there was any sort of widespread dissatisfaction. After all, Ralph asked me if I would like to do Chapter 2. 
hardly an indication that the book had been less than what Marvel wanted. That's from that uh, that interview in 2000 on CBR. That's, that's super interview. So that kind of contradicts what uh, you know Paul Jenkins says about what he was told. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I want, you know, considering where you know where Spider-Man's gone since, I think they pretty much moved away from Chapter One. Uh, yeah, they did reprint it a few years ago out of nowhere. I, I saw that. I they, remember they, that. It's like, what in the world? Yeah, I was interested, but, I, I but then I, I yeah. heard bad things. Yeah, I, I don't know if they were maybe putting out an olive branch to, to burn. I, I don't know. Maybe. Um, now, this all led into the Burn Mackie reboot, or this was happening co- coinciding with it. This is in a, The Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2 and Peter Parker <laughs> Spider-Man Volume 2. Um, but before we get there, we need to end those first volumes. Now, he ended the first volume of Amazing Spider-Man with issue number 441, November 1998. This features uh, around this time Aunt May gets better. Aunt May had been killed off in Amazing Spider-Man number 400. This was very on, very early on in the Clone Saga before it really uh, overstayed its welcome. It's yeah. written, by, <laughs> written by J.M. DeMatteis, who seems to have every character he kills retconned back to life. <laughs> I mean, he did he did Craven's last hunt, Craven's back. He killed Harry Osborn, Harry's back. Yeah. Kills Anne May, May's back. And it's a shame because this story was uh, was it was very nice. It was a point a very poignant story. It was. Uh, you have uh, she's very sick, and it it comes to the point where they realize that that she's not long for the world, and uh, she asks uh, Peter to take her to the roof of the Empire State Building. So they go there, and she goes, "Tell me, how how does it look from out there?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" She's like, "How stupid do you think I am, Peter? Hmm. <laughs> You've only been living with me for fifty years." There now. it is. I, I, yeah, really. I, <laughs> <laughs> who do you think sews your costume when it fits? <laughs> you know, I've known you. I've, I, I had to know you were Spider-Man. So I mean, it was so beautifully done, and she died the same issue. So it, it was very well done, and it, it sucks that they undid it. Um, now the dead May, who knew that Peter was Spider-Man, was revealed to be an actress. Oh, uh, very knowledgeable actress. Well, she was an actress hired by Norman Osborn, who did know that Spider-Man was Peter. So it, it it fits, it fits. It just I'm, I just wasn't pleased with it. Yeah. Um, now he penciled the he penciled issues uh, one to eighteen of the relaunch series, and he wrote issues thirteen and fourteen. Um, Gathering of Five. Oh, I shouldn't have said that yet. <laughs> the Gathering of Five is towards the end of the first volume. Here, it's a very un-Spider-Man story. It's magic-based. There's these these trinkets that give certain attributes. You know, like you could be, you go to this meeting, this Gathering of Five, and when all five things are together, you might get, you might get powers, you might get wisdom, you might get insanity. Hmm. Um, there's a young girl named Maddie Franklin. There, she gets superpowers. We're, we're led to believe that Norman Osborn, because he's part of this, he also gets superpowers. Sure. Uh, now, this leads into the final chapter of the first volume of Spider-Man, which is called the final chapter, where Norman kills Spider-Man. But this was all in Norman's head, because in actuality, he got the attribute of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> You're still with me? Wow. Uh, this this ends with Peter calling it quits, lighting the fire, throwing the costume in, and saying he will never be Spider-Man again. But they wanted him. They they Didn't they actually want Peter Parker to quit? Uh, wasn't that a Marvel edict at one time? They wanted him to get take... I know they wanted that, that was, to happen sort that of was during, during the Clone Saga. saga. Oh, that I was during the Clone be... Saga. Because they had they had revealed that Ben Riley was the actual Spider-Man and Peter and Mary Jane, a Peter and a pregnant Mary Jane. That's right. Moved out to uh, Washington State. 
and they were and, supposed and, to know, just have like a you know a happily ever idyllic after. life yeah yeah because actually when they found aunt may alive as an you know when they found out that the real one the fake one was the one who died they uh we just kept hearing these odd you know may is alive may is alive and all the fans thought that they meant may the baby because uh-huh. Mary Jane had given Mary Jane had given birth. It was a stillborn child, but they left they left it very nebulous. You'd see like shadowy people running running off from the uh, you know the, the delivery room. Yeah, and uh, we were led to believe that it was one woman who kidnapped the baby, because we were getting these scenes of her buying baby furniture, and and like dolls and toys, and then we find out that she's just very protective of her cat. Oh, but boy. Uh, it, it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the grand Spider-Man reboot, this is with uh, Howard Mackey. Um, the new number ones happen here, and um, Spider-Man is there, but so is Peter. We find out that Maddie Franklin, the girl who got the powers during the Gathering of Five ceremony, is now Spider-Man. She uh, is Spider-Man for a little while, and then she spins into her own Spider-Woman series, which lasted over a year. Um, now, they planned on de-aging Peter. What happened Peter. to Jessica Drew? She just wasn't around? I don't know. It, this is, I mean, this is at the... I think this this would make Maddie Franklin Spider-Girl... I'm sorry, Spider-Woman 3? Yeah. Because it's that Julia Carpenter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> just such a mess. Um now, Marvel had planned on de-aging Peter and erasing the spider marriage. Uh, this is this is something that they were tasked with, and Byrne and Mackie, or maybe just Byrne, came up with a way to do it through use of uh, a character called the Shaper of Worlds. It's this odd-looking thing on, on like, treaded wheels. Yeah. Very strange. Now, uh, he has it where a down-on-his-luck Spidey would be rebooted by the Shaper, taking him back to a happier time in his life. When he was younger, single, uh, less responsibilities... Uh, Peter would Before realize... he was Spider-Man, basically. It would have <laughs> oh, to be. Yeah. Uncle Ben's still around, so we're good. <laughs> um, now, when Peter realized... If this had gone forward, when real, Peter would realize what had been done, and he would protest. And uh, the Shaper says, uh-uh, I already did it. I yeah. can't undo what's been undone uh, again. <laughs> I only undo once, okay? That's yes. it. <laughs> yeah, things get wonky the other way. <laughs> uh, now, this idea was shot down. Um, now, editor at the edit, he was either editor or editor in chief at the time. This is Bob Harris. He preferred that they young Spidey up by making him a widower because what says young better than a widower? Of course, yeah. <laughs> and he orders Byrne and Mackie to kill Mary Jane in a plane explosion. Byrne reluctantly did the gig, but he made sure that he left a the door flying off the plane when it exploded, so giving the indication that eh, maybe she got off, and of course she did. Uh, this run was. Uh, Almost universally panned. But luckily, they came up with a great way to end Peter and Mary Jane's marriage later on. Oh, so yes. everything worked out fine on that front. But yeah, this is definitely, <laughs> I mean, this is definitely the waning years of, uh, you know, Burns' popularity for sure. It's it's like yeah. things have, the penny really, the, the worm has turned, as they say. Uh, <laughs> he gets another shot at the Hulk, Hulk Take Two. Following Peter David's over a decade long run, Marvel canceled Incredible Hulk and launched. Hulk with John Byrne writing and Ron Garney on art. Yeah, he only wrote issues one through seven. That was April '99 to October '99, and the first annual, uh, annual one was called Hulk Chapter One. Much to everyone's disinterest, <laughs> you know, Peter David had had such a monumental run. I think they were like, what you know, well, you better follow up with something great. And yeah, uh, you know, his back to basics approach probably didn't sit well with him. Uh, a later in comic mocking by uh, by Rick Jones. 
written by Peter David and an issue of Captain Marvel. That was the uh, Janice Vell version. Yeah, and I think this is when they tried to, you know, the Hulk, he's rampaged over cities, towns, pasture, farms, desert. And I think it was here that they tried to say that he had never killed anybody. Yeah, you know, uh, not going to fly. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. plus, plus, he was a real badass during Peter David. You know what I mean? Like, you were, oh, he was the God. kind of Hulk that would kill. He wasn't the nice Hulk, you know? Like, yeah, he was, they, they, he was basically a green skinned. Wise ass Superman. Gray for was, a little while. He, he turned gray, yeah, and then he, he was Joe Fix It. Yep. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, I, like I say, Byrne is doesn't have his finger on the pulse of the kids anymore. Um, Marvel Lost Generation. This was March two thousand and February two thousand one. This was a twelve issue maxi series sought to fill in the missing time between Marvel's Golden Age and Silver Ages. Um, when they weren't really doing a lot of superhero comics in, in the real world. Basically, World War II to, fresh, to Fantastic Four, number one. Uh, this was published backwards from uh, issues number 12 to 1. I've never read that. It sounds interesting, but it also sounds maybe not that necessary. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's, a, I think, <laughs> I, a good way to put it. I tried it. it. <laughs> I tried it, and it, it, it didn't capture me. Yeah. Um, it, it felt, you know, if Marvel really got behind it, I think it could have been something, but it seems to have been a let's give John something to do. Yeah. And it just it didn't seem like there was really any heart to it because Marvel just didn't seem to care. I mean, he's a guy, he's got a lot of good ideas, but he might need a strong editorial hand to shape him up. And he, maybe he wasn't sure. getting them anymore, partly because he had grown past the need to be edited, or at least he probably felt that way, but also because maybe they were, uh, you know, this this constant retroactive... Uh, you know, dwelling on the Silver yeah. Age, um, which really was at the turn of the, tw- of the 20th century, was like all over DC and Marvel. Uh, yeah. It kind of wore on people. I, you know, I don't think that people, most people, and uh, you know, why should they? But most people, you know, t- ages 20 to 30, they don't care about those comics. And you know, again, they're old ass comics. You know, I don't. I, you know, I, we're the kind of people that do like them, but I definitely don't expect yeah. everyone to be uh, into that stuff. No, we're that we're that vocal minority of cyber geeks, right? Yeah, we'd probably be them. Definitely, <laughs> definitely some sort of micro brains of some stripe here. I can uh, only hope. <laughs> uh, after this, he did X Men: The Hidden Years. I remember this vaguely. Uh, Twenty-two issues, December nineteen ninety-nine to September two thousand one. This was designed to fill in the missing time from when X Men went to all reprints all the time. That was sixty-seven to ninety-three. They originally uh, bi-monthly, right, for a long time. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, they just went reprints for years until Len Wein would bring out the all-new uh, mm-hmm. X-Men later in the, in the 70s. Um, was greenlit under Bob Harris' regime in Marvel. When Jemis and Quesada took over, the book was canned immediately. Uh, not due to sales, but for the fact that <laughs> it... Uh, <laughs> and this, this is really, considering the way things are nowadays, but they were afraid that it made the X-Men too confusing. Yeah. Uh, I defy any new reader to pick up <laughs> any X-Men title off the racks today and, and explain what the hell's going or on. Or from the past 25 years. Yeah, I mean, it really, it's talk about convoluted, you know? I mean, it sounds like what, what Byrne wanted to do was nothing compared to what they've done. They got, like, 
Ford of the same team running around. They got everyone's, you know, the X-Men are dying, but some are yep. in outer space. It's all over the place. And, and this was a fairly straightforward. It was it was harmless fun. It was uh, he did try to tie some of his lost generation in there. Uh, he did try to fill in some Fantastic Four lore in there and he even had them meet Storm which would have been before Giant Size X-Men, which yeah, that, cool. that was probably the most contentious thing he did. But it was a, it was a good book. It was There was nothing wrong with it. I, I, I remember it, and I remember people uh, somewhat panning it, but I I, uh, I read some of it because I love that original X-Men. I, I, I like that, and I like the 80s too, but I love the Stanley yeah. and Kirby one, so I really was interested I, in this. I think it might have gotten panned because, I mean, ultimately it's unnecessary. Yeah. But, I mean, how many books are necessary these days? That's what you got to ask yourself. Sometimes yeah. when people talk about, you know, I, I didn't read that because it wasn't important. Well, I got news for you. In the grand scheme of things, none of it's important. It's all fiction, no. buddy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> after this point, Marvel, he, Byrne never worked for Marvel again. Uh, we don't know if he's vowed never to work there again, or maybe it's a while Casada and uh, uh, is Jemis even there? I think he is, right? No, Jemis. Oh, gone. that's right. He Gemma left. left. He went to. Uh, he only made it there like a year or two. But Casada's still doing his thing. Joey to Q and uh, what, whatever it is, whether it's you know predicated on his working there or not, he has not worked there since, and he has not really voiced an interest in working there since. No. And you can't even type the word Marvel on his forum. If you do, it comes up M star R V star L. So that's pretty crazy. That's some Stalinist Russia type shit right there. You know what I mean? Just like I, I hope that that's a macro. And, or, and, oh, you, know, you think it might be the, the posters doing it like as a as a courtesy? I, I, I almost hope that it's a filter. That's insanity if it's not. That's yeah. like we're all lockstep. You know, John Byrne has yes. never worked at Marvel. You know, this has never happened. <laughs> we have erased that from the story, from the history. <laughs> so uh, after this, he did Superman, Batman, Generations. This one I know pretty well. This was an Elseworlds series. There were three of them. Uh, number one was January, March 1999. Number two, these came out as uh, comics originally, um, mm. was August, November, August to November 2001. And number three was March 2003 to February 2004. Uh, the series kind of has diminishing returns over time. The first one... Is it's two different stories over multiple issues with a ten-year elapsed between them. Uh, then the next one is the same exact thing, two different stories though, but with an eleven-year elapse. And it kind of, and then by the last one, it's a century elapses between every issue, and that it mm. really starts to become. It sounds a lot more interesting than it is. I mean, what it really happens is that you know the two comics have nothing to do with each other. You know, two two uh, two sequential comics are tangentially. Connected, you know, uh, because they're a hundred yeah. they're a hundred years apart from each other. Um, but I did like the first one, and you know, I think I believe they're coming out with a trade of all three down the line. Um, mm -hmm. I could swear I saw that. Maybe I imagined it. But, I think you're right. But uh, through Grant Morrison's recent Multiversity uh, miniseries that came out last year, I think that was, or maybe two years ago, uh, like that, yeah. Generations was given its own Earth in the DC multiverse. Which John Byrne was not pleased with for reasons that we don't know. <laughs> no, no, he, he didn't seem very because somebody had brought it up to him on the forum, and he 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 was kind of uh, dismissive of it. Yeah, he probably has a reason. He probably says that's supposed to be an imaginary story only, or some crazy yes. nonsense. But whatever. <laughs> or just questioning the creative uh, prowess of today's you, today's writery uh, uh, bullpen. I guess I don't Quite know. Quite possibly. Uh, Byrne would also do some comic strip work for uh, one of the most uplifting <laughs> <laughs> co 
comic strips ever put the newsprint. That's Funky Winkabean. Uh, he filled in for several weeks uh, while uh, creator Tom Badiak was uh, rehabbing from foot surgery. And I put the pithy comment that it must have been his drawing foot. But, uh, <laughs> it's true. Like, come on, why couldn't he? Anyway. <laughs> have you ever read Funky Winkabean? Oh, yeah. I, well, you know, we don't get it in a New York paper, but you get, like, every time I go anywhere else, it's in there. And it's, like, the most, like... It's the most depressing. It's, it's just like, you know, it's like a nothing comic. It's, you know, it's like Mary Worth or something. You know what I mean? It's like, who gives a shit? It's like uh, there was a, uh, it got some press for, for killing off one of its characters by, through, by uh, I think it was breast cancer. Yes. Uh, a character by the name of Lisa. And it seems like every time I read it, they're either getting ready they're setting up for because every year they do a, a Lisa's Cure fun run for cancer research uh-huh. in the strip, and it seems like every time I pick it up, they're either getting ready for it or they're recovering from it. Hey, man. So I don't know. Milk I don't that, know if it's milk that press, baby. I guess it just seems it's it's a it's a downer. Um, he also uh, went to uh, DC and did uh, JLA numbers ninety four to ninety nine. This is May two thousand four to July two thousand four, which marked him. Working with Chris Claremont again. Yeah, after for, saying he would never do it again, he, he was doing it again. <laughs> yeah, for the, for the first time since his X-Men work, uh, Claremont provided the scripts. Um, this was a vampire story called The Tenth Circle. And their logo, get this, was an X, you know, the Roman numeral for ten, mm-hmm. tenth circle. And uh, there was an X inside a circle. Hmm, I think I've seen a belt buckle looks like that, don't Maybe, you? Maybe, yes. so out there in the wild? <laughs> now, this story would introduce the, uh, the new slash old Doom Patrol. Um, it was something. I, I, I was kind of waning on JLA at this point. It wasn't really the flagship title of DC anymore. No. And you could tell. And uh, it was just there. I still, I still bought it. <laughs> I think I read it once. Um, this uh, led to John Byrne taking on a, a bunch of different DC titles here, including that same Doom Patrol. Yep. He uh, wrote the fourth volume of Doom Patrol. It was 18 issues long. It was August 2004 to January 2006. Tagline, together again for the first time. Rebooted the team. Uh, he calls it an in-continuity rebo- reboot. And I don't know what that means. It, it, if you read, it, there is a somewhat of a through line between Arcudi's run and this one, but it really is tenuous. I mean, he basically like shunts off a bunch of you know, a bunch of characters go packing, or I think some of them even mm. die. Right. Isn't beginning. this like? Uh, isn't this like the chief is lonely, so he manifests a team or something like that? Something like he, he brings it's, back Rita Farr, which she, she hadn't been back in, you know, since the since the original, since the original uh, one. Uh, and, but he also kept on that uh, that girl with the forearm gorilla, and she had been in Arcudi's run. There was a lot of no, no, she wasn't. She oh, was she a new. Uh, that was his. Yeah, yeah he, that was his because a lot of the people on his forum are wondering if he can get full ownership of those characters. Oh well, I'm sure he can if he really wants to. To be honest <laughs> with you, I've never seen her again or, or that forearm gorilla. Yeah, but uh, no, I thought, was a, I, yeah, maybe yeah, I guess I just have it wrong. But it was because I know there was a there was a there was continuity between the Morris and Pollock run and the Arcudi run because uh, Dorothy Spinner shows up in it. Yeah. Um, but this one, I don't know what it was. Uh, Keith Giffen later wrote the fifth volume um, that that did somehow manage to tie everything in. It did. It, t- it did. It used this also. And actually, when you come to think of it, uh, the Morrison run is in continuity with Paul Kupperberg too. It leads right out of it. Yep. So yeah, yeah. Because Kupperberg is the one who introduced Dorothy Spinner. Exactly. Yeah. And and you know, it just picks up right from there. It still has the uh, couple of the characters. Um, 
What the hell's that guy's name? The guy with the fire powers. Anyway, Celsius. Celsius. Well, no, that was yeah. uh, that was Arani. That was the one. That was yeah. His name. Was, I don't remember his I name. Remember. Um, yeah. So so this this was the this was the uh, outlier. Yeah, um, and apparently he'd wanted to do the Doom Patrol for a long time because he felt that no writers since Arnold Drake got them exactly right, despite Drake saying the exact opposite <laughs> in regard to Grant Morrison. And you know, I'm a, I'm a big Doom Patrol fan, and this is one of those things, when this was announced, I was like, yeah, this is great. You know, John Byrne, Vanguard of the Silver Age, I figured we'd see mm-hmm. something like that old Drake Premiani Doom Patrol, and it is hands down the worst run on Doom Patrol. You know, Paul Kupperberg's run that used to be as often most maligned is like a, a dream compared to this. You know, you're like, well, at least it's <laughs> at least it's sort of like a crappy X-Men, you know, whereas this is just unpleasant. And also, uh, Chris and I have talked about it a little bit off the air, but the art really seems off to me. It doesn't seem like Burns' art. It uh, doesn't. And he, could, and he was drawing well at this time. I, I've thought sure. that it was the inking. Uh, what the it guy's might be. Havermeyer? Was that the guy's name? Am I right? Hazelwood? No. Hazelwood. I think that's what Doug Is it Hazelwood? Hazelwood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it really wasn't. It wasn't like those. Uh, was was it Palmer who does does his uh, inking a lot? I think Palmer did it in X Men Hidden Years, and that was still really nice work. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it, and and that's like a year or two before this, so it's uh, yeah, it, it's something weird happened there. I, I really. I don't know, obviously, the full story, but I'm I'm reluctant to put it all on Burn because it does no. look really strange and really not like his work. It looks, you know, it looks reminiscent of his work, but it almost looks like someone doing a Burn impression. Um, yeah. So something something went weird there. I'm not sure what it was. I'm not going to speculate anymore. But that's all we'll say about <laughs> this run of Doom Patrol. Yes, uh, he also made his return to uh, the Superman books here. He did a run on Action Comics from issues 827 to 835, which was July 2005 to March 2006, where he was penciling for uh, scripts written by Gail Simone. Mm -hmm. Uh, He continued working with Gail Simone on the all-new Adam. It was a series uh, in 2006 that introduced the the new uh, Ryan Choi Adam, who I think the last time we saw him was in Convergence. We the, definitely uh, saw him there. Uh, if he's shown up they, since then, I don't remember. I'm not sure. Um, he did a creator-owned series that actually was in the DC Universe. This was Lab Rats in 2002. Um, uh, it was, and, and you reviewed this for your blog. I didn't did you? review yeah, it. I and, and my my conclusion was that it was it was it was the wrong the comic book is the wrong medium for this story because it was. It felt to me like a one of those young adult novels that gets turned into a, a you know, billion dollar movie because it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. It's a I don't even rem- I don't remember the particulars of it, but it just seems like it should have been done in a different medium, and I think it would have been received a lot better because it's not bad; it's just there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, and this is in the DC universe. Superman shows up at some point in it, and. So weird. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, Sovereign Seven with Chris Claremont. You know, that That's was right. a creator-owned thing that was in the universe, and I think uh, Young Heroes and Love was another one. They they were doing that a lot uh, around the turn of the century. It was interesting stuff. Um, the, as far as I know, the rights for those characters have reverted back to John Byrne. So, if he ever has interest in revisiting, I, I guess he can. Cool. Uh, he also did a run on JLA Classified in 2008. It was a story called That. Let's see. That was now. This is then. It was written by Roger Stern. I've got it. I haven't read it. 
Yeah, um, I have no memory of this at all. And then uh, he did uh, Superman True Grit with uh, Monty Python alum uh, John Cleese in 2004. Never read it. Yeah, we never read that one. I've, I've seen it and thought about it. Yeah. Never actually picked it up. Yeah, it seems like around like the mid two thousands, there were two Superman books that were always kind of like on my periphery, and I never picked them up. It was this one, and it was that Mark Miller, uh, Red Sun. Oh right. It's like it's like those two books came out. It's like oh, I'll get them eventually, and I just never did. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, life isn't over yet. You can still do it, Chris. I know, I know. I gotta gotta get them on the uh, on the old Amazon list there. Um, <laughs> he uh, did some work at IDW. We talked about them a little bit earlier. He did some Star Trek work. He also revived the Next Men uh, that went from 2010 to 2011. I think it ended with a a mini series. Uh, there was a mini series that ended the entire thing. Yeah, and, uh, as I understand, it, it's it is truly concluded now, right? He did yeah. finally get to finish that story, so. I believe so, and uh, he does. Uh, right now, he does Star Trek: New Visions from uh, 2014 till now. These are manipulated photo plays by John Byrne. I, I've, I don't know how to explain these. Yeah, you really got to see them to understand them because they're not just uh, photo. They're not like we talked about uh, on uh, the code last week. Uh, Marvel's yeah, it's not Fumetti. Fumetti. Yeah, and it's not. Um, it's not like drawings on photos. It's almost like collages. It's really almost mm. I don't know avant-garde. Esoteric, yeah. But I I've never I've ne- I'm not a Star Trek guy. So I mean I never uh, never tried it. It wouldn't uh, even I've have never, been on my radar. I've, I've only looked at it uh, just out of curiosity. But yeah, I'm not I'm not a big enough Star Trek guy. And frankly, even if I was a Star Trek guy, I'd probably want to read a comic rather than a. Whatever. Then pay well, pay four or five bucks for, for whatever oh, that is. Four or five, seven or eight sometimes. They're, they're, these things are no expensive as hell. Yeah, wow. you know the cachet of John Byrne doing paste ups. You're gonna pay. <laughs> you're gonna pay for that privilege, buddy. That's coming out the nose. So that more or less is John Byrne's career, and I will tell you right now, we did not provide a hundred percent complete uh, rundown no. of everything he ever did that would really be difficult he did a lot of work folks there were some we, one-offs we didn't do we weren't ready to do another five-part podcast no yet. exactly we wanted this one to actually be <laughs> short believe it or not but uh there, there it goes so um but that's a lot of work that he did uh some other little anecdotes about john byrne going up into the present uh in 1999 uh, November 1999, in fact, Marvel filed a lawsuit uh, against Marvel Comics over the creation uh, or the use of his character Blade. Uh, I'm sort of saying this wrong because that was the, what was in contention, whether it was Marvel Wolfman's character or Marvel's character. He created that for Tomb of Dracula in the 70s. Um, Right, that was the one. Had to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he filed a suit in November '99 to try to, you know, right before the movie was about to come out, and thinking, and it was pretty big. So he wanted to obviously get a little dough out of it. So Marvel had some witnesses come up, almost like character witnesses, because it's it's kind of hard to, um, I mean, really the only witness you could have is someone say, have someone say, you know, Marv Wolfman knew all along that he didn't have rights to this character. It's kind of yeah. hard to prove, but they had. Uh, Jim Shooter, Jeff Rovin, and John Byrne as their witnesses. Um, Byrne's testimony was on day two, but he was in the courtroom on day one, allegedly making faces at Marv Wolfman uh, from the from the gallery. Uh, Michael Delberto, Wolfman's lawyer, said, "If I may, I just want to comment. During the day yesterday, the expert witness for New Line and the employee of Marvel were making faces and gestures at the witness all day." 
I would ask that they be excluded from the courtroom until they testify or at least admonished not to make faces at the witness. Who knows? I find that I find the very idea of it hilarious, but that's cool. It's it's, it's a riot. Yeah. Uh, Wolfman tried to portray Byrne as having had hard feelings against him because this is such a weird story. So when Byrne was still trying to break into Marvel, he had uh, come up with it and he had drawn an entire issue of Fantastic Four on spec for, you know, just as a, you know, to, to promote himself as part of his portfolio. And uh, apparently Byrne thought that this, even though he was brought on to Marvel almost that exact same year, right then in 74 or whatever it was, yeah. um, he thought that Marv Wolfman, who was editor-in-chief at the time, had rejected it. It turned out that John Byrne was wrong. Marv Wolfman was neither editor-in-chief nor did he reject anything. Um, but this all seems too convoluted. It doesn't seem right. Uh, and, and Byrne, and I actually personally agree with Byrne here, says that, you know, he was wrong, obviously, but who was editor-in-chief, yeah. but he didn't take it, no hard feelings. I mean, after this, he went on to do Iron Fist and X-Men, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like mm -hmm. he, they, he didn't get work, so uh, I think that Marvel Wolfman may have been digging deep for some ancient rumors. And uh, now I'm going to give you a nice block of his testimony. This, I think, is a great peek into the mind of Mr. John Byrne. <laughs> so, let me just get ready for this. Yes. Uh, I can remember several instances where I was in groups of people, which included Mr. Wolfman, that we were talking about various things and the idea of creator ownership and the discussions of same came up. And I remember three instances, in most particular, in roughly chronological order. The first one would have been 1975. I was in New York over the Thanksgiving weekend. Roger Stern, who was a writer and a friend of mine, had been invited to Thanksgiving dinner at Mr. Wolfman's house, and he what brought. What color me... shirt was he wearing? I mean, really, I, you know what I mean? Like, what a, <laughs> you know? At first, he's like, I think I kind of remember in 1975 Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it's like. You and then remember, he goes, Rain Man. <laughs> you remember every damn thing that happened. Um, and he brought me along as his date, quote-unquote. Uh, I was still, I was very new in the business, and I was just absolutely overawed to be sitting there having dinner with Mr. Wolfman and Len Wein and various other people. I asked a lot of questions about how the industry worked, and I was given the caution to be careful because the companies own everything you do. So be careful what you create. Second one would have been when, I believe, it was when Mr. Wolfman and I were doing the Fantastic Four. He contacted me. He phoned me, said he had a science fiction series he was contemplating doing, possibly for submission to Star Reach, which was a small independent company. It was an apocalyptic sort of barbarians living in the shadowy streets of New York. I, would I be interested in drawing it? He expressed to me that this sort of... that. This was a sort of partnership that we could co-own this. It was very different from working at Marvel because at Marvel, of course, you didn't own anything. Mm -hmm. The third, there is a little backstory to this. If you don't <laughs> mind, I was at a if you don't mind, I was at a convention in New York and we were all sitting around at a table at the convention talking about various things. It approached noon. The question of what to do about lunch <laughs> came up. People said we can get pizza, we can go to Brew Burger, we can get McDonald's. Somebody said, there's a little deli across the street, we can just go get a bagel. And I said, I've never had a bagel. Mr. Wolfman and Mr. Weed were utterly astonished that I had never had a bagel. They practically physically transported me across the street to the deli and bought me my first bagel, which was an onion bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> wow. Like they, How a, many ice cubes were in his cup? What a great witness, right? Jesus, you know. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, it's almost like a story from my grandmother. You know, my grandmother used to tell stories like, 
I was sitting and the phone rang and I got up and I walked over to the phone and I picked it up and I said hello and the other voice said hello and I said who's this? It's the same kind of thing. It's like he's reliving it as it's going on, like you know, he's transported back in time. You could see him like putting his mouth, his hands up to his mouth. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> so he's eating this bagel. Just trying, yeah, just like and I can still remember. It was very uh, soft and succulent. Uh, anyway, it goes. He concludes by saying it was one of these very shishi, very modern delis with the tall, skinny tables and stools. And the three of us sat at one of these tall, skinny tables, and we talked about all kinds of stuff. One of the things that came up was Steve Gerber was engaged in that point. One of the things that came up was Steve Gerber was engaged at that point. What I come to think of as an early saber rattling of whether he owned Howard the Duck. Len and Marv together expressed that they were very interested in about what Gerber was going to do about that, especially if he took it to trial. Because how would he have a case, since we all know the companies know, own everything? So, I mean, this is really him talking at a school, trying to prove that Marv Wolfman knew very well that, you know, he was doing work for hire and had no uh, cause for to have Blade. But the, the level of detail is almost scary. Like you say, very Isn't Rain it? Man, like... Yeah. This is a guy that never forgets. John Byrne and elephants, you know what I mean? Never forget, <laughs> folks. But do uh, they forgive? Yeah, oh, John yeah. Byrne doesn't, so <laughs> I don't know about elephants. <laughs> I haven't asked one lately. No. Um, but you gotta, you got to wonder. I mean, this is this is when he was in good graces with Marvel. I mean, yeah. I would figure if he wasn't, they probably wouldn't have summoned yeah, him. Yeah, very unlikely. But, yeah, you, know. it, it, you, said, you said earlier, you know, if it had been two years later, he, yeah. would have, he would have been singing a whole different tune, folks. It would not have been very pro-Marvel at all. Now, for some uh, non-controversial... We're going to get on to some, uh, some quotes, as, you know, we have to. Of course. <laughs> uh, here's some uh, non-controversial quotes here. Uh, some things that he had coined, uh, such as what he calls the Superboy story. And I, and I like this. It's uh, any story that's told in the past whose outcome is never in question. Uh, Basically, it's Superboy, you know, pre-crisis. Uh, he can never lose or die in a story because we all know he's going to eventually grow up to be Superman. And, uh, you know, he actually mentions this during the uh, 2099, the 2099 pitch. He didn't. He wanted it clean so it wouldn't give away what was coming in, in right. the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Um, another one here is Growing Roses. And this is uh, really a, a Todd McFarlane term that's uh, been a uh, become a burn go-to when discussing people missing their deadlines. Um, McFarlane claimed that many of the image books during the boom were late because those creative creative teams they were involved in growing roses, rather than making books that were crapped out on a monthly basis. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny to look at those twenty-five cent bins these days. Yeah, I know. Which 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 are the books that were crapped out? <laughs> <laughs> Which are the ones you can actually afford to use as toilet paper? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, another one, um, it's more about the singer than the song. And this is one I, I like because it's it's very true these days. Uh, his thoughts that uh, the comic industry has become more about superstar creators rather than the creations on the pages. It's true. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this to some extent where I will follow a creator <laughs> to some titles. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's also the way these things develop, though, often because... Yep. The creators are the ones to follow. They're the ones that are doing the work that you want to see, no matter what it is. So, uh, yeah. I I, kind of, I don't like the way it's presented in in the. I, I hate to call it the comics media, but it's like you'll have Dan Slott's Spider Man. Yeah, I know. I know. It's yeah. Like, well, how about we? <laughs> how about Spider Man by Dan Slott? That might be a little better, exactly. Or Maybe. Dan Slott back on Spider Man. There you go. 
Uh, and also BBB, Big Bad Burn Stories. <laughs> now, these are stories that, uh, that change pleasant personal interactions with fans into contentious ones. Like uh, someone will tell them a story about how he yelled at their kid, and he's, he remembers not yelling at their kid and, in fact, you know, giving him a free book or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he appears irritated but uh, oddly tickled by these stories. I think he likes that they're – I think, in a way, it, it's kind of funny that they're out there. It's become and I think he can see the humor. Yeah, it's yeah. become sort of the uh, – you know, image of John Byrne rather than the reality. Yeah. Uh, who knows what really? Only only John Byrne and the baby can know what happened in that scenario. Yes. But yeah, I, I yeah, definitely he didn't steal the lollipop. Did I he? definitely Maybe. think Not people, uh, you know, they 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 rake him over the coals uh, as much as he does say insane stuff, which we're going to tell you some now. Here's some of his more <laughs> controversial uh, quotes out in the world. Um, and by the way, these are only uh, this is a small sampling of John Byrne's yeah. amazing quotables. If you do a search for John Byrne quotes, you're going to turn up a ton, and I'm going to give you a link to a, a guy that tweets out uh, current commentary yeah. and quotes by John Byrne on, on every manner of subject. But anyway, this is just some classics that are in the arsenal. On mature comics, he says, I repeat, bullshit. Pull your head out of your ass for a moment and look at this not as a longtime comic book reader, but as a civilian. That's what he calls non-comic book readers, by the way. Yes. This looks like a comic book, feels like a comic book, smells like a comic book, tastes like a comic book. No uninitiated person is going to look at this and think, ah, this lurid cover illustration indicates this book must be intended for mature readers. They're going to think, look, what they are selling to my children. And those children are going to think, cool. <laughs> Which is pretty much what is expected. But anyway, uh, this is yes. one of the best. On Christopher Reeve. Uh, oh. In 2005, this is the man who played Superman in the most beloved uh, Superman movie, which was in 1978, I'm pretty sure, by Richard Donner, so. was the director. Uh, if you don't know or you forgot, he fell off a horse and uh, was paralyzed for the rest of his life until 2005 yeah. when he passed away. And um, John Byrne had to say, I have noticed that people have begun referring to Christopher Reeve as a hero. I do not wish to take away one iota of the courage he must have needed not to wake up screaming every single day. But the hard truth is there was nothing heroic in what happened to him or how he dealt with it. In fact, as far as how he dealt with it, he didn't even have a choice. We could imagine he spent every hour of every day when not in front of the cameras begging family members to simply kill him and get it over with. But none of them did, so he had no choice but to deal with each day as it came. Heroism, I believe, involves choice. Wow, dude. You know what I mean? Like, can we just can we let the guy have this little, you know, he did break his freaking It's not hurting back. nobody. Uh, he even, he, but he wasn't done. He had more to say on the subject. He yes. said, I've gotten tired of calling Christopher Reeve a hero. A really terrible thing happened to him, and our society can't deal with it when terrible things happen. So we try to make it out that it isn't a terrible thing. It's an uplifting thing. He's a hero. He's not a hero. He's in hell. <laughs> wow. Jesus. Okay. Somebody pulled his string before that. I know. Yikes. What was your problem with? Re- and he loves that movie too. You know that, right? He loves the yeah, first. He, yeah. he thinks it's the probably the most. He says it's his favorite superhero movie. So, mm-hmm. uh, what a weird, what a weird guy. But uh, you know, some of his uh, some of his comments aren't even on comics necessarily. Mm-hmm. But on uh, how about Hispanic women? <clears throat> Personal prejudice. Hispanic and Latino women with blonde hair look like hookers to me, no matter how clean or cute they look. Somehow those skin tones that look so good with dark, dark hair just don't work for me with lighter shades. Okay. 
Hey, everybody's got their thing, right? Could yeah. have said it a little bit nicer, I suppose. But the, the question that they asked was, do you want a glass of water, Mr. Byrne? That was the problem. <laughs> <That's basically laughs> and I mean, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. There's, there's very often I'm the only white dude in a building. Uh-huh. And I've seen plenty of, uh, plenty of Hispanic women with blonde hair. And uh, I think it looks good when it's professionally done. I think, you know, I think you've come from a different world than Mr. Byrne. You know? <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, it's not professionally done very often. No, it's usually it's done usually in a sink, a, right? Yeah. It's usually a kitchen sink gig, and it looks pretty pretty not, not I see, so nice. I see a lot of those jobs, too. Yeah, not so flattering. Mm. When he was questioned on this stance, he says... What we've seen here today is the all-too-typical example of an all-too-typical attitude. Those who are the loudest to defend their freedom of speech are the quickest to try to slap down anyone whose speech differs from theirs. The standard, all opinions are valid as long as I agree with them. And he continues. Interesting, all of the, this is after, I guess, he got a flood of complaints because I'm sure the quote-unquote comics media probably picked up on this and ran with it. Mm. Because uh, what else are you going to say? Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. Oh, Marvel's going to reboot it number one again. Oh, well, what, what's Byrne what's doing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, uh, he says, interesting. It's interestingly, all, of all the lurkers who have flocked here to be offended today, as well as, as well as one or two regulars, none are Hispanic or Latino women who have dyed their hair black. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if any are, give me a call, okay? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm going to give you my uh, PM me. Hit me up in um, private message. <laughs> now, even to uh, he, he had a fan who had wished that that he had uh, that John Byrne had enjoyed the same status he had in the past. This was something that was said to him in 2006. And he answers with, "John Byrne is tired of stepping up to the plate. John Byrne is tired of doing the right thing and getting effed up the ass for it for his troubles. John Byrne is tr- tired of being lied to." John Byrne is tired of you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Bird. Uh, and that's that really is just a small sampling. You can go over there to is. his web, his forum at burnrobotics.com. Or is it a com? Uh, I think so. You know, if you just you know, if you have the time, if you want to sit and pour through the posts, you will find gem upon gem, offensive statement upon offensive statement that'll blow your mind. Um, and you know, like I said, it's been collected elsewhere around the web. Yeah. So this and, is. And, and the scary thing is you might actually find yourself agreeing with what, a lot of what he says. It's just the tone. Absolutely. I, I, I've said that I actually agree with yep. much of what he says, but I very rarely agree with the how he says it. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, he just cuts to the quick, and there's something to be respected about that, but at the same sure. time, it's like you've got, you know, you're in, you're in a medium that's trying to appeal to the public. You have to ingratiate yourself a little bit. You, can't, you know what I mean? Or don't talk to them. You know what I mean? Be one of these rec- reclusive uh, creators. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, I guess we can end the story here with uh, the Will Eisner Hall of Fame, where Byrne was inducted in 2015 alongside X-Men collaborator and uh, I don't know if they're friends now. We'll call them frenemies. We'll do that. Uh, Chris Claremont, as well as uh, Dennis Kitchen and Frank Miller. They were all the the ones that were voted in. Wow. And this was uh, presented at the 2015 San Diego Comic-Con, which, if you know Byrne, you know he didn't go because mm-hmm. he doesn't do conventions anymore, except for one. He just did one just uh, last weekend, right? Right, yeah, just last weekend. Yeah, he did uh, a, a Star Trek fan convention because he does those uh, Star Trek uh, photo, whatever they are now, yep. um, in Las Vegas. And uh, from all accounts, he seemed to have had a pleasant time. That's nice. I'm so glad to hear that. That uh, you yeah. know, the Star Trek fans, and I think I, I remember him uh, reading that he was not going to sign any of his comic book work. 
Only so Star Trek. That yeah. probably, I think only the recent stuff too, not even like his, uh, the stuff he drew. He did draw a little, a short series, I think, early on yeah, for RDW. So uh, that pretty much takes us to the present with John Byrne, but there's a lot more that can be said and a lot more that we could have said if we wanted to make another multi-part episode, but we didn't. Yes. But if you want to tell <laughs> us all about John Byrne, either your thoughts, your experiences, where we messed up, what we missed, you can write to us at our brand new Gmail address, which is weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. No longer have to uh, slip it in under the door at uh, you know Jim and Eric's <laughs> Jim and Eric's office. You can send that directly to us. But if you want to uh, see other things that we've written, um, uh, our reviews and sometimes articles, you should go to weirdsciencedccomics.com. We do reviews uh, every DC comic every week, and then we're actually doing Marvel comics on Mondays. Plus a potpourri of other things. Uh, you want to follow me on Twitter? I'm at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I got to give a shout out. This person, I don't know who this person is. I, they mm. have not endorsed me, but I'm going to endorse them. Yes. Uh, the Twitter account at John Byrne says. Uh, that's mm -hmm. all one word, obviously. Uh, what he does is he tweets out. Um, he sort of goes through the Byrne forum, I guess, and and picks up pertinent quotes. Uh, yep. And and post them daily, several times a day. As a matter of fact, oh yeah, about anything, uh, about comics, about movies he's watched. I mean, it, it really there's practically a burn quote for every topic in the world. I think you could really <laughs> base a religion yep. around it. And this is the guy that compiles them all. He's also got a sister site on Tumblr, John Byrne Draws, where yep. he puts up a lot of original artwork, commissions, and and pencils. Yep. It's a great resource if you want to just get into the mindset of John Byrne, but you can't stand going to his forum because it's, it's too <laughs> sycophantic and weird and creepy over there. Uh, this guy really does the job. And, and I do know that he's a true John Byrne fan. I think a lot of people Absolutely. think that he's uh, yeah, a they, troll of some sort. He's, he's, he's trolling. He's a fan. It's yeah. couldn't, be, couldn't be more the opposite. You know, A lot of stuff that John Byrne says has disappointed him, but I don't think anyone can claim otherwise at this point. You know, that No yeah. one can say can agree with everything he says because no. it really it really spans runs the gamut from each extreme you know um, mm -hmm. anyway definitely got to check him out if you want to know about more about John Byrne and of course John Byrne's official forum uh, burnrobotics.com is always out there if you want to get the uh, party line and I tell you every week you got to go look at uh, Chris's personal blog Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com uh, he does a DC Comics review every single day. It could be from any point in DC's history. Sometimes it's a brand new one. Sometimes it's 20 years old. You never know. Usually it's very weird, really well written, and you really got to check that out. But I think that we have run way long here, Chris. <laughs> I think we have yes. blown it out on the John Byrne tip. Do you have anything else for them out there? Uh, just to clarify, you know, uh, I, I've, I've often said if you were to build a comic creator from component parts build him from the ground up, I don't think he'd look too dissimilar from John Byrne. I yeah. think it would, I think he is the consummate comic book creator. I, when I think of, when I, when I, I'm serious, when I think of comics, I, I, he's usually what I think about. Yeah. And, uh, so, I mean, I know we kind of had our fun here, but, uh, I, I think, I think we both respect him highly. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we there we we also can be disappointed by some of the things he said and done. I you know we we we, we could go much more deeply into yes. the possible motivations for John Byrne. It's something I really don't want to speculate on too much. No. Uh, you know, 
I think I think when he sounds angry and and he sounds you know like he's been jerked around by the comics industry that he uh, loved so much and so much of it he kind of helped to construct at least in the modern sense. Sure, uh, I think that's true, and I, I think that, I think that his attitude is a reflection of that. Now it is a shitty attitude, uh, <laughs> and I don't have to take it, but I I can understand where it comes from, and no matter what happens from now forward whether he you know becomes a died in the world nazi or whatever you can't take away from his work that he's done you know sure. uh some yeah. of the some of the most amazing comic book work since the lee kirby era i think uh definitely Absolutely. a disciple of that you know yeah. so and yeah i think we're both big fans but i i i'm pretty sure neither of us have an account at the Burn Robotics Forum. I do not. And I am a big fan, except for that goddamn Doom Patrol run, because it sucks. But anyway. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so that's it. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, and mm-hmm. until next week, we're going to tell you to keep it weird historically. Yeah. I knew this brother that was almost a genius. True brilliance would meet him at the zenith. But on the damn side, my man would get depressed. Negative thoughts destroy what he did best. Native creative, aromatic artists focus on his energy and show through a sharp piece. Prodigy performer, musically divine, classical composer. Innovators each time, gifted individual. Say no more. Going through the motions, feeling sad on tour. Scared of the fame, pressure on the brand. Rhyming backstage when he introduces me. How slights go down, everybody clap. Fuck it, the show goes on and that'll be that. Smile for the camera.